My grandmother was an avid reader. All the way up to the end of her life, she would read pretty much anything she could get her hands on. And while she was a sucker for a good mystery or a spy thriller, she also read a lot of nonfiction. So when we were recently sorting through old boxes of hers that we had in storage, there were a shit ton of books in there, and among them was Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation. I remembered she'd read it, and I wasn't surprised she'd kept it, because clearly throwing away or even donating books was not her strong suit. But honestly, she didn't like that book very much. We never called ourselves that, she said with a certain amount of derision in her tone. And she's not wrong. Nobody else did either. Naming generations is a relatively new thing in human history, most sources crediting the invention to Pittsburgh native Gertrude Stein when she dubbed those who experienced World War I the Lost Generation, a phrase later borrowed by Hemingway. But the folks who famously lived through the Great Depression only to fight in World War II and seemed to never complain about a damn thing the whole time? They spent most of their lives with the moniker the GI Generation. It was Brokaw who coined the term The Greatest Generation with his book in 1998, and the name just kinda stuck because generally speaking, we all like our grandparents and don't object to calling them the greatest anything. But something else happened in 1998 that cemented this uniquely American nomenclature into our cultural consciousness. The release of today's film. One year after a disappointing awards season with his last historical epic, Amistad, Steven Spielberg got back in the director's chair, and boy oh boy did he swing for the fences. It's an epic tale of the fictional quest behind enemy lines to rescue one unimportant everyman in the midst of the greatest cooperative organized military invasion in history. That may seem like a silly premise now, and yes, it's bookended with one of the dumbest prologue-epilogue combos ever committed to film, and when you check IMDb and find that the screenwriter went on to pen The Patriot and everyone's least favorite Marvel movie, some of the puzzle pieces start to fall into place. But absolutely none of this felt silly in 1998. Its violence was so graphic and its scope was so monumental that it left every past war film in the dust and sent every future war film scrambling to do it one better. It was a cinematic monster constructed in a mad scientist's lab and specifically designed to make you go visit your grandfather and thank him for his service. That certainly doesn't make it a bad film, but it doesn't automatically make it a good film either. And it does keep us discussing what the intent was in making the film and in making the film this way. Because while this film was made about the GI generation, it wasn't made for them. Much like Brokaw's book, it was ostensibly made so the generations after would appreciate what they did and what they went through. But as my grandma Masick indicated, her generation probably wouldn't have made it for themselves. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. And this is an excellent war film, sir. With an extremely valuable box office, sir. And it is worthy of the best efforts of this podcast, sir. So come gripe up, not down, with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we tackle the genre-defining, ultra-violent, Oscar-winning, peak Spielberg masterpiece, starring Matt Damon, Barry Pepper, Adam Goldberg, legendarily good guy Tom Hanks, legendarily not Ben Affleck, Edward Burns, and legendarily Tom Sizemore, Tom Sizemore, saving Private Ryan. Now 
it in. It's Danger Close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here as usual with my partners. Katie. And Liam. Today, we're very excited to talk about a very, very popular film and a film that always makes it to the top 10 lists of best war films ever, according to critics and a lot of fans. And it is 1998's Saving Private Ryan from director Steven Spielberg. I'll pass it off to Katie right away with our mission briefing. What is there to say that hasn't already been said about Saving Private Ryan? I'm going to do my best anyway. Upon its release, it was hailed as the best war film of all time by some critics. Others only stated it was a masterpiece unlike any other. Its brutal but necessary violence illustrates the horrors of war with simplicity. While its appealing cast of characters each makes a different impression on the audience, regardless of how much screen time they're given. Screenwriter Robert Rodot was inspired by a true story when writing the script. The four Neelan brothers had all been deployed in World War II, and when three of them were thought dead, the War Department pulled the last one out of the war. From those bare bones, Rodot crafted a story about a group of men sent into France on the search for one elusive man in order to bring him home. Financially, it was a box office success, with a relatively small budget of $70 million and a huge worldwide take of over $400 million. It was a critical darling and won many of the bigger critics' awards shows which led most to believe that it would be the Best Picture winner. It did end up receiving 11 nominations and had seven wins, including Spielberg's second award for Best Director. But in what is widely considered one of the worst Oscar snubs of all time, it ended up losing to Shakespeare in Love. Generally, the opening battle in this film is thought to be one of the most accurate at portraying what it felt like to be at D-Day particularly in regards to the sound design. How did you two feel watching this scene? Does it come across as realistic? So I would answer your question by saying that the way you worded it is very astute. You said the scene is praised at depicting what it felt like to be there. And I would underline that and put it in bold because as we will discover through the rest of this discussion... I think that the film does a brilliant job of depicting what it would have felt like to be in Normandy at the D-Day assault on Omaha Beach, specifically, for many reasons that we'll get into, that assault was particularly dreadful and did not go very well and not as planned. So there's a difference, of course, between is it super historically accurate? Does it look exactly like it would have happened? And do historians say, yes, this is 100% perfect? Or is it even the best depiction of it that's ever been put on film? Those are different questions with different answers than does it feel the way it needed to feel? And if the question is, did this depict how it felt to be on those D-Day assaults? I think that the proof is in the pudding that if you look at the stories from veterans themselves talking about it and anecdotal stories reported in the media, et cetera, of you know Spielberg making this film for veterans, that was his stated intent. He made it for his father, who was a veteran of World War II. For all the inaccuracies and goofs that rivet counters can bring up, and, you know, we'll, we'll be fair, we'll bring up some of those things, 
veterans either getting a special screening or just veterans who went to the film in general. result was not a bunch of veterans walking out of the theater laughing saying what a bunch of garbage and oh this was this was backwards and this wasn't the right tank and blah 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 the story that you hear including Stephen Ambrose who got a special screening at 20 minutes in he had to stop it and go collect himself because he couldn't finish the film without you know he had to come back in and then say okay I'm ready and finish it Many, many veterans report the same thing, you know, crying, walking out of the theater, certainly walking out at the end, being speechless, not knowing what to say. And even calls to PTSD helplines, the the statistics on those calls went way, way up. Here's an account from a D-Day survivor watching the film. Uh, His name is John Rayan. He says... It was a very good portrayal of Omaha Beach, and it left him speechless five decades after he landed there on June 6th as a 22-year-old Army captain. Quote, I remember when I walked out into the lobby of the movie house, not a single person coming out of that showing said one word. Everybody was stunned by it. I was too. I wasn't about to talk to anyone either. It just brought back so many memories that your mind was racing through all the things that happened to you. So I think in terms of depicting how it felt to be there and what people's memory of the event is. It is an extremely well-made depiction of that. And for that Spielberg and the film deserve all the accolades that they got. Liam. You know, I think my, my answer on this would have, would have been different the first time I saw it than this most recent rewatch, because this is not a movie that I return to a lot. I think I feel the same, honestly. But I remember being very struck by this scene when I saw it back in 1998. Mm-hmm. Watching it now with maybe I've seen it once in between 1998 and two days ago. This is like your second or third viewing ever. This is maybe my third complete viewing. Okay. Like, you know, you grab bits and pieces here and like there's scenes that are played over and over again just is as like clips that are a part of other things like tom hanks saying uh ryan i don't know anything about ryan i don't care i've seen him say that a lot right you see clips on tv and all that exactly and uh the camera tricks that they use particularly i mean throughout but particularly in the d-day invasion I don't know if all of those tools that they use hold up over the long haul. I think it dates it very, very firmly in 1998 when this was kind of like cutting edge filmmaking. And they were like, oh man, let's try this. And there are some scenes in this that the, the way that the camera moves and shakes and the frame rate and how things look crisp, but also grainy that look like something out of a Soderbergh film from like three years later. Like it looks like traffic. And I don't remember things looking like that a great deal before this movie. So I don't know if like this movie just had that big an impact or this scene rather had that big an impact on everything else that like it changed the game. And now we have since moved past it, but there are some things that jumped out to me a little bit in, in this rewatch that, more took me out of the scene than drew me into it. Okay. It was definitely in the first wave. 
of using such dramatic color correction and tints and all of that stuff that they really. And the shaky cam. Uh, the shaky cam that they almost overemploy in this one. So, yeah, I think in in 1998, this felt completely immersive. In 2022, now that we have a context of a lot of other movies that came after it, some of the filmmaking feels a little bit more, and I and I hate to say it like this, but feels a little bit more quaint in the filming techniques that they used than they did at the time. First of all, I'm really happy to hear that we have different impressions of this because that's great. It's going to make for good conversation. I get what you're saying, Liam. I definitely come to the opposite conclusion. Like for me, those things did not pull me out. And really any moment that reminded me of the time period when this was filmed, for me, I realized how well they pulled off what they were doing. So a good example would be that in Gladiator, two years later, I do not appreciate the frame rate of the slow motion Mm -hmm. action scenes. And I think it looks shitty and pulls me out of the film. I did not get that impression in this film. And I think we'll get into a little bit later why that is. But this is a way better movie than Gladiator. (laughs) Like, like, just give me give me the affidavit and I'll sign it. We do not have time to go there. I'm just talking about in terms of camera techniques, like there are some camera techniques that are similar in a film from two years later from another big director, but I think that they pull them off way better here. And again, I'm sure we're going to break down why that is. And I will say that this is probably going to be a thing that I touch on throughout. So spoiler alerts, watching it this time, there were a lot of things about it that I was like, well, that's 1998. And it's not all just the filmmaking. It's some of the writing and the acting, too. But we'll get there. Okay. Katie, what uh, what's your answer? So I, I likely have, I haven't seen this since the movie came out. Uh, the first time I watched this movie was when it came out on home video. As a homeschooled person, my mom showed me this as educational materials of this is an example of World War II. And we watched a lot of movies. It wasn't like she was saying, this is fact. It was Let's talk about World War II from this perspective and blah, blah, blah. And I took it very differently the first time I saw it. It was much more visceral. This time, and I think this will come up throughout the film, I kind of had my critic glasses on, which I don't do with every movie, but with some, I just kind of fall into it where I'm not quite as able to immerse myself and I'm looking at it to a certain extent from a reserved point of view. And... I think it's very engaging and everything I read about it said that it feels so accurate. And the reason I brought up the sound design is that that was something that was repeated over and over in every thing I read about Mm -hmm. the accuracy. The sound design in this absolutely fucks. Oh yeah. All of the things that I don't necessarily like about the cinematography, the sound design ages like fine wine. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that was one of the things that was praised because just in the same way that scent is something that will really immediately take you back to a, a memory. Sound is also like that. And so there was a lot of praise for how accurate it sounded mm-hmm. and how engrossing it was because of that aspect. And Spielberg specifically reached out to theaters or to the organization that does that to ask them to crank the sound up. He wanted it to be louder. And I know some of the people that worked on the film when a little bit later home theater systems like 5.1 surround systems became more prevalent a few years later. They were really excited about that because they were like, oh, cool. People will get to watch this at home with the sound the way it was designed for theaters. So they definitely 
put a right. lot of thought into that. All of the sound design, including the Foley, you know, everything. And I, I would say, you know, obviously when I watched this way back when it was on VHS, right. whereas I watched it this time on 4K. So, you know, those things are just going to have a huge effect on your viewing experience. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really great opening to this film. It sets the tone of what we are watching and it gives us perspective on who these men are that we're about to follow onto this story. So, and I think it does that very successfully and it kind of made me feel like, all right, I'm ready to follow these guys and see what, what happens to them after this horrific battle, which it feels like it shouldn't really have to do anything if you've gone through that, but that's not the life of a soldier. So, and this is probably something else that I will, that I'll touch on a few times. This, my second, maybe third viewing was also the first viewing of it for my son, who is 11. Oh, cool. So I showed it to him. We deliberated for a long time if 11 was too young to watch this, but my wife and I were like, uh, yes, let's go ahead and do that. You made the right call. It's neat to watch an 11 year old who hasn't watched all of the movies in the world, who doesn't know what's going to happen, go through this for the first time in 2022. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see like who he sort of latched onto from the beginning, because every time they'd be like some kind of skirmish in the D-Day scene, and then it would cut back to to Mike, Tom Sizemore's character. Right. He'd go, oh, good. (laughs) He was just very happy that Mike was still making it through every time we saw it. Did he recognize Vin Diesel? No. Oh, okay. He also has not seen a Vin Diesel movie apart from Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay. Which is not really, maybe he's Groot, right? Yeah, he's Groot. Pitch Black is, yeah, the the Riddick movies are fun, but they're also, uh, we haven't gotten to Pitch Black. Makes sense then. And the other ones are kind of garbagey. No, the other things would be like Fast and the Furious, which if you think I'm raising my kid on Fast and the Furious, it's like, you don't even fucking know me anymore. (laughs) No, yeah. (laughs) So Vin Diesel is an interesting character as a person, as he exists in Hollywood, because he's biracial Mm -hmm. Yep, and has been very vocal about his path through Hollywood as somebody who doesn't get to play like the quote white parts, but also doesn't get to play the quote black parts. And in this his arguably breakout role. He's playing the Italian guy. And it's like, he like people didn't know what to do with him ethnically. And so he's somebody who I really like to see succeed because I, from everything I've heard about Vin Diesel, he's actually a pretty cool dude. And I know he's a big D and D nerd. He absolutely is. That's all. And uh, wow. He's into wow, too. Like his uh, in triple X, his uh, tattoo across his stomach was actually the name of his uh, level 19 drow witch hunter. Oh, boy. Which then, of course, later on, he did a, a movie about called The Last Witch Hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the bits of trivia slash goofs brought up is that he would not have been in that unit in real life because the army was still segregated. So as a mixed race person, I guess if they're selling him off as Italian, he could have been there. That's what they were doing. That he was playing an Italian character. So they had to, because had he been half black as the character, he would not, it wouldn't have been accurate for him to be in that unit at all. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. It's just interesting that he's, I don't know when you listen to him in interviews and you, you know, you see the things, the passion projects that he's kind of, tried to do right. and nobody seems to want he wants to be like an old school like hollywood studio system actor 
And it's just that time has passed and Hmm. nobody wants to see him do that. And it makes me feel a little bad. So as I stated in my mission briefing, this was a controversial year for the Oscars when this one was up for an award. And honestly, as as someone who I was obviously not a critic at the time, considering I was like 13, but I, I know how things are these days. And this was the film that set a lot of precedent for oscar campaigns yes and there's not a bad enough hell for harvey weinstein to go to is the long and short of it you're just you just just took that quote away from me jesus i'm sorry yes (laughs) this is this is totally where harvey weinstein got his name was the fact that he was able to make shakespeare in love which again i was 13 in 1998 and totally loved shakespeare and gwyneth paltrow and love stories Who doesn't love love in 1998? Exactly. It was entirely up my alley. And I still was like, I don't think that should have won Best Picture. (laughs) Because, of course, at that age, I was an avid fucking Oscar watcher. Same. Nerds. So here's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Let's hear it. Everybody. Everybody was flabbergasted. As they should be. That Saving Private Ryan did not win Best Picture. Except for me. (laughs) And why was that? In 1998, well, this would have been early 99, I was, let's see, 16, 17 years old. Okay. I'm watching the Oscars. So you're very cynical. That's what I'm hearing here. I've always been very cynical. But here's the thing. I was watching it and I was like, you know what? I think Saving Private Ryan is going to win Best Director, but Shakespeare in Love is going to win Best Picture. And what prompted that thought? So two things. Number one. That's the way that I believed it should have played out. What? Yeah. Number two, just looking at the history and the track record, these things come in waves. And about once every decade, they split the vote and something something gets best director and doesn't get best picture. Happens about once every 10 years. I think the next one was actually just a few years later with A Beautiful Mind and Traffic. Mm. That would have been 2002, I think. Soderbergh won Best Director, but A Beautiful Mind won Best Picture. But prior to that, it had been about 15 years or more since they split that vote between the Best Picture winner and the Best Director. Right. It had been going lockstep through the entire 90s. And I was like, you know what? I think this is the one that's going to do it. Because here's the thing, and this is, hate me all you want. Could never. Shakespeare in Love is a tighter film than Saving Private Ryan. As a movie, it's a better movie. Oof. So many people just unsubscribe to us for that, Liam. How could you? I know. It is so... Steven Spielberg absolutely should have won Best Director for this. That is right and proper. This is a directorial feat that has seldom been accomplished before or since. But the movie just isn't quite good enough as a whole. As a movie-going experience. Katie's still trying to, like, crunch numbers on me. No, I'm I'm Googling. Oh, this was the year. I mean, this was a competitive year for the Oscars. It was. That other stupid fucking World War II movie was up. Easy. Life is Beautiful. That one, too. Is that that the one you're referring to? No, I was talking about the Thin Red Line. Mm. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah, there was the Thin Red Line, Life is Beautiful, which also sucks. Not true. Liam is so wrong so many times in this episode already. It's amazing. Saving Private Ryan, Shakespeare in Love, and my personal pick for that year, Elizabeth. 
Mm. Elizabeth was good. Yeah, Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Kate Blanchett. You can't beat her. Well, apparently you can. This was a very competitive year for the Oscars. And I feel like Shakespeare and Love probably split the difference because notoriously, this was the year that Weinstein, like. Oh, he put people in fucking headlocks over this shit. Yeah, like he went all out on this one and was pretty awful in a way that this was like the other reason why you don't want to be called up to his hotel room. Yeah, yeah. This this he took it to a whole new level in yeah. 1999 to try to get Shakespeare in love. And can we also can we also agree just as as a quick sidebar that for purposes of Oscar history this is the winner for 1998. Well, I think the Academy actually agrees with you. I've read trivia comments where when they were asked again, they were like, yeah, that was a mistake. We should have given it to. Yes. Well, yeah. But no, I honestly, I still prefer Shakespeare in Love to this as a movie, but that's a matter of opinion. Weird that our theater director would prefer something related to Shakespeare. But this did win. It didn't win Best Picture, but it did win Director. What else did it win? Editing? Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Film Editing, and Best Director for Spielberg. Were the five it won. Honestly, in my mind, the production on this film is so great, and I want to come back to it once we've gotten a little more into it, because it'll provide more context, but the sound editing, in my mind, is probably the best production value. So... As usual, we're here to talk about the film and not as much, you know, we're not a history podcast, but we're going to cover the history briefly. want to give a shout out to Richard Stevens and Dave, friends of the podcast, for doing most of the research. I had a lot of conversations with Dave afterwards to answer some questions. We also had some comments from Callum O'Connor, who is in the military in Europe. And uh, of course, Micah Nadorfler, who is our resident army captain in the U.S. Army, and they were all great at answering some of my questions when I had to ask for some of the details. So here's some of the historical context on the film. June 6, 1944, the Allies launch Operation Overlord, the invasion of German-occupied Western Europe in Normandy, France, east of Cherbourg and the Cotentin Peninsula. The primary invasion consisted of five beaches from west to east, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno and Sword. United States forces landed on the western beaches, Utah and Omaha, the British at Sword and Gold, and Canadians at Juno. On the western flanks, U.S. paratroopers were to land behind enemy lines and prevent reinforcements from attacking the Allies on the beach, secure causeway exits, and aid in securing Karen 10, a crucial town linking Utah and Omaha beaches. Likewise, the British airborne units were to secure the eastern flank. Due to intense anti-aircraft fire, the American airborne units were severely misdropped and few landed within their designated drop zones. This led to the formation of LGPs, little groups of paratroopers, men from various units who coalesced into small groups and carried out some sort of activity to disrupt the enemy, particularly the cutting of telegraph wires. By June 12th, the Allies had pushed far enough inland to capture several towns in the area and link the various landing beaches into a unified beachhead. And in terms of the opening D-Day scene, which, of course, we mentioned that we're talking about, uh, you see some of the landing crafts, mostly LCVPs. Those are landing craft vehicle personnel, usually referred to as Higgins boats. Those are the American boats designed by Andrew Higgins. Eisenhower is quoted as saying that Andrew Higgins is the man who won the war for us. If Higgins has not designed and built 
the LCVPs, we would have never landed over an open beach. The whole strategy of the war would have been different. And the British also had their LCAs, landing craft assault, which had a driver and a machine gunner on them. We'll get into that a little bit later. They are not depicted here. And this landing at Omaha is basically depicted as being all U.S. personnel, which is mostly accurate, except that, again, they didn't show any British drivers in some of the LCAs, which would have been a little more accurate to depict. Do we have anything about the Sullivan brothers? This is based on the the thing with the Nyland brothers, but the Sullivan brothers were the, and they mentioned them briefly in the movie. There's a throwaway line. Right. So there's two things. The Nyland brothers is the part of the story where they're trying to get this one surviving brother out of the war. The right. Sullivan brothers all went down together, five of them, on the USS Juno, because before, brothers tended to enlist together and get put together That's in units. Right. Well, it was very similar to like the civil, in the Civil War, it was just this whole town of young men just went off to war and then died and didn't come back. Right. Exactly. So prior to the sinking of the USS Juno, it was common to have friends and brothers enlist together and serve in the same unit. After that, kind of branch by branch, that policy was changed so that people in the same family were not allowed to serve in the same unit for this obvious reason. So, yeah, they're kind of two of the stories that they took inspiration from to write the story of Saving Private Ryan, as well as the third act, the Battle of Ramel and the assault on the bridge. Ramel is a fictional town of that particular scenario did not happen but it was like based on possibly like a couple of it was based on a real event that involved the germans crossing a bridge and the americans holding it etc i have to say that 100 percent honest i cried actually on this particular viewing and that's probably has a little bit to do with me getting older and as i gather more life experience i have more of an emotional connection to things not being a combat veteran, it's rare that I have an experience that other veterans have had. You know, they had some intense combat experience and like there's something that I can relate to because for the most part, I'm not that different from you guys when it comes to hearing a combat veteran tell their story about what it's like to kill people, what it's like to get, you know, see your friends die. Like I don't have any experience with that, but I do remember the line later in the film when when they're discussing shooting the German POW after the radar assault, which, again, we'll talk about that later, Captain Miller says, I just know that every man I kill, the farther away from home I feel. And I remember a six-month period coming back from deployment in Iraq where, again, we were on a big base in the middle of western Iraq, relatively safe. I was an air traffic controller. I didn't go outside the wire. I wasn't. I carried a weapon every day, but I wasn't shooting at anyone. We did get mortar hits, though, and one missile hit. Not many, maybe once a month, the base got hit by one or two random mortar rounds. The base is so big, most of the time they hit like an open field. The missile that hit once was right next to the tower. So I was actually in a radar room, which is about a mile away from there because I didn't work in the tower when I was out in Iraq. But I remember that missile hitting, which was significantly bigger than a mortar explosion. Mm -hmm. And I remember my entire chest reverberating from again a mile away so i can only imagine what the guys in the tower felt like we were in a soundproofed basically a shipping container that's where the radar room was at in the middle of the airfield and i still felt you know my chest vibrating and rumbling from that explosion so i'm sure there were some dudes who shit their pants because that missile again randomly happened to hit right next to the tower 
But I remember a good period of a year after that where I really didn't like hearing loud bangs and fireworks and stuff. And it wasn't some PTSD thing. Like I didn't like hit the deck and like have flashbacks or anything like that. But I just remember the distinct feeling in my stomach that when I heard a loud explosion, it made me feel like I was far from home. Mm. It was a very like emotional feeling. And so in my own very minor way, because again, I'm not talking about killing people, but I remember Captain Miller's line where I was like, I kind of connect to that. I know what he's saying about feeling far from home. Again, his case is much more extreme than mine, but that was a good line that as a veteran, I emotionally connected with. And so who knows, you know, this is the first time I've seriously watched this movie after having at least military and deployment experience, despite the fact that I don't personally have combat experience. I was really affected by it, to be honest. Again, the camera tricks and the stuff that they did, the desaturation, the kind of slow motion scenes. I mean, I always bring this up as an example when there's an explosion that hits near Captain Miller and his hearing kind of goes, right? So I think it's supposed to simulate that ringing in your ears. And I remember thinking about that scene and I felt the same way when I watched it again of, wow, what great use of sort of the frame rate being adjusted and the sound design to Tom Hanks being both emotionally and physically out of it for a second when that explosion hit. So his ears are ringing, he can't hear the other soldier on the beach is screaming at him, what the hell do we do now, sir? You can't hear him, right? You just see his mouth moving. And then eventually I think another explosion hits and his hearing comes back to him. And there's a sort of a long, drawn-out whistle in the sound design back there that's sort of... It's that like tinnitus kind of sound. Kind of tinnitus, and it's foreshadowing that something's about to happen, like sonically, you can tell. Right. And the sound designer was talking about how he accomplished that, and right now I can't remember exactly, like physically, what he did to achieve that sound, but I just remember him conceptualizing the sound and putting it in there. like how genius an idea that was again this is one of those films like you watch the matrix or you show the kid your kids the matrix and they're like oh yeah bullet time oh yeah all this stuff like i've seen this a million Mm -hmm. times before but you have to explain to them you're like this was the first this was the first time that it was done or that it was done really well and i think saving private ryan also takes up that slot in that there are a lot of war film tropes in this film especially the d-day scene If you play video games at all, first-person shooters, this scene has been done to death in first-person shooters where, for better or for worse, like some did it better, some did it worse, you can kind of experience playing this scene as an infantryman. You know, Call of Duty did it. Didn't DreamWorks make a video game of this? Yeah. Not like of Saving Private Ryan, but like... No, but it was Medal of Honor, I think, and the D-Day scene is like... Yeah, I think Medal of Honor was the one. Yep. Like, they had the rights. It was basically pulled directly from this. And, I mean, it works, right, when you put it in a first-person point of view. I think also, when you learn a little bit about how Spielberg decided to shoot this, I can't remember off the top of my head how many days it took them to do this, but I think the first 20 days they were filming the D-Day scene, and they did it sequentially so however far they were making it up the beach at the end of the day like that's where they stopped shooting and started back up but i think really interestingly and definitely why i agree with liam that the best director oscar here was well deserved from spielberg he did not storyboard or really plan the d-day assault out in detail 
he wanted to be spontaneous and he wanted the camera teams to sort of just watch the action and kind of like a combat camera crew member decide what to focus on and where to go. Now, obviously you have squibs and amputees that are having legs blown off, you know, as a practical effect and all that stuff. So you can't just redo that automatically. Right. There are these planned moments. Mostly Irish veterans, too, weren't they? Yeah. Like it was the, the Irish army supplied a lot of the extras. Right. And to not get away from that bit of trivia, they wanted to film this like on the actual you know, beach in Normandy where it happened. Impossible for many reasons. Uh, one, there's right. too much modern buildings were built in the background where like they would have had to scrub those out. CGI wasn't that great. Two, just too many filming restrictions. It's kind of a memorial and there are lots of memorials. That cemetery they film is right on top of, you know, it's, it's nearby. And then also the British army did not agree. They gave them a few hundred troops, but they didn't supply the few thousand extras that Spielberg wanted. And so he had to cut a deal. So they ended up filming it on a beach on a, the eastern coast of Ireland. And the Irish army supplied two or 3,000 extras. And so the main difference there in, in terms of the physical look of the beach, which does affect kind of the tactics. And one of the things that's called out as an inaccuracy about the D-Day scene is that Normandy famously at low tide is like a mile wide. One of the reasons, amongst others, that so many Americans died, especially in the first wave, the first wave was really brutal and very few people made it to the end of that beach, is that they had a mile of obstacles and open beach to traverse. And so the machine guns had a ton of time and the artillery to take them out. That is something that is condensed both in time and physically on this Irish beach where they film because it's a much shallower beach. Mm -hmm. So the troops right. don't have as much beach to traverse and the machine guns. When you see the perspective from the German bunkers, it's like within a hundred yards. Yeah. Yeah. It feels very short. It's very short and it's very right there. And in real life, everyone would have been murdered in that situation because the machine guns, they have an effective range of 500 yards. So at a hundred yards, like, yeah, like it wasn't necessarily the thing dropping down and then just everybody getting mowed down, which did not happen in real life. Right. That is one of the things that's embellished. Yeah. That part, it feels a bit. I don't know. I guess the only word I can really think of is rushed. Yeah. The, well, the whole idea, like the you're watching it, and you're going like, how did this even succeed? Right. Who would have agreed to this? Who thought this was a good idea? The inaccuracies that are pointed out about the D-Day scene are both like people getting all mowed down inside a boat that on this particular beach did not happen that way is used for dramatic effect to, again, convey the emotional effect of just how shitty a situation these soldiers were in. Right. That did not happen. However, in some ways, the first wave at Omaha Beach actually ended up going worse than what's depicted in the film, if you can believe that. After the soldiers' initial disembarkment, they are shown crouching in groups near the shore and later running towards the bunkers. Unlike the movie shows, anything even as simple as crouching behind the tank traps, let alone actually standing up and running, was impossible at Dog Green Sector, and indeed, for anyone when pinned down by a machine gun from a high, faraway position. In the real-life landing at Dog Green, within 7-10 to 10 minutes, all the officers of the landing company were dead, and the survivors inert. They could do nothing except throw away all their equipment and slowly crawl up the beach, shielded from bullets by the incoming tide and dead bodies. Jesus Christ. One hour and 40 minutes after landing, 12 
known survivors made it to the base of the cliffs. That's 12. Only two had enough strength left to go on and fight with another group. The second wave, apart from one boat, which was almost entirely killed, opted to land elsewhere when they saw the fate of the first wave. In this way, the movie rather poorly represents what it meant to make a properly opposed landing on D-Day, although whether this is justified or not is another matter. So it's kind of crazy, again, that the D-Day scene is both historically inaccurate because it's too intense in some ways, but also not intense enough in other ways because you have this whole slew of soldiers that make it onto the bluffs and you have the whole scene with Sergeant Horvath and um, and Captain Miller giving orders and, you know, getting around things. And again, because there were so many beaches in different conditions with different opposition, narratively, you could kind of pull what you wanted from different beaches in retelling this story. But if we're talking about Omaha Beach, how things really happened were a little bit different from the film. It's a different question as to whether they emotionally displayed what it was like to be there, but physically things went down a little bit differently in real life. For sure. The interesting thing to me, one of the things that you said was about the sound design and how it like drops out. It is funny how much of a trope that has become like even Mm -hmm. sometimes overused, but sometimes used super well. Like we saw that from just what, five years later in Master and Commander Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was used to great effect in that as well. But I don't remember an instance of that being used prior to Saving Private Ryan. So incredibly influential scene in the filmmaking of it did impact pretty much every other war movie that came after it. Mm -hmm. Another small thing that I have to throw in there in terms, again, I'm not going to rivet count this film. There are plenty of things you get wrong when you try and do such a big scope historical picture with what you have available to you, etc. But the log ramps which are these sort of triangular it looks like a telephone pole set up on a wooden thing visually the one thing they got the most wrong on the d-day landing is that those log ramps are supposed to be facing the opposite direction so essentially they're designed so that at a higher tide the boats if they hit one of these log ramps they would slide up the log and then it would either flip the boat over or the logs had mines on them and the boat would hit a mine. So it had to be, you know, the low part had to be facing the water and the high end had to be facing the beach for that to happen. I'm really unsure as to how they got that wrong, considering how many photos of Omaha Beach there are and how easy it is to see. Now, is that those tripod looking thingies that they were hiding behind or what are those? You always see them, but I know very little about all of the like the accoutrement of the Normandy landing. So the <laughs> obstacles that you see depicted in the film, usually, so those giant caltrop looking things that the big metal X's that you see the soldiers hiding behind. Yeah. Cause I was like, why would you put those there? That looks like a great place to take cover. It's anti anti boats <laughs> and anti tank. So those are informally called hedgehogs. And if you think about it, the way they're set up, it is the one thing a tank cannot run over. You can put a field of concertina wire somewhere, which there was further up the beach, but a tank can just roll right over barbed wire, concertina wire, all kinds of stuff like that. A tank cannot roll over a hedgehog because the thing doesn't rotate and it's the tank is the treads are not going to be able to go above it and smash it. So those obstacles are both anti-tank because, again, not depicted in the film, but the Allies landed a ton of tanks on the beaches as well. It just Mm -hmm. wasn't that successful at Omaha Beach. 
And then if the tide was high, I think that the edges are pretty sharp. And those things are also designed to tear open the bottom of Higgins boats. So if a boat would go over one of those hedgehogs just at the right height, again, with higher tide, it was both an anti-boat and an anti-tank device. There are also these things I think called Dutch gates that are not featured in the film. But the other big thing are these log ramps that, again, are designed for boats to slide up them and either flip over or blow up uh, due to a mine. At the time, the Internet was not that widespread, so maybe it was harder to look things up. But it's just like with all the military advisors and all the pictures they inevitably must have looked at to make this beach overall look pretty historically correct. I don't understand how they put the log ramps backwards like that's just a visually really striking and then once you know it you can like never watch it the same way again because you're like (laughs) oh look at all these log ramps that are completely backwards and are not doing what they're supposed to be doing i also wondered that i was like i feel like those are the wrong direction for that exact same reason i was like definitely because my initial thought was how did they plant those uh cover devices while the germans were watching i was like oh no that must have been the germans who laid the hedgehogs Mm mm-hmm yeah, they're, exactly. They're not designed for cover, but they they work. But they work great for cover, apparently. Well, they're better than <laughs> nothing. I don't know if they work great, but yeah. Hey, exactly. If there's a piece of metal you're going to get behind it. And, you know, and I think that as a parenthesis, when it comes to historical inaccuracy in a film like this, I think Saving Private Ryan is a great reminder of how something can be praised for being one of the most realistic depictions of something in a war history film to be made, which everybody agrees Saving Private Ryan is, you know, very, very historically accurate. And again, we'll get into the tiger tanks at the end and all that. And at the same time, you can have like literally 25 pages of goofs of rivet counter saying, well, you didn't get this right. You didn't get that right. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not like they didn't try. It's not like they didn't have a budget. It's not like they didn't care. Steven Spielberg's on the record saying that had this film gotten an NC 17 rating because of the violence, which it was close to getting, he would have not edited it at all. And he would have released it as NC 17. He was really pleased that this became a blockbuster, but he was not trying to make a blockbuster. He was really trying to, crank the violence up to as close to reality as it could possibly get because he wanted to show what these veterans actually went through so the mistakes and the goofs are more an indication of how difficult it is to make a really historically accurate picture about something like this because again you couldn't have had a better team and you couldn't have had people with their hearts in the right places and that were trying to make it all look right with lots of veterans, you know, contributing and consulting. Captain Dale Dye, of course, is in this film. You know, he got a part. He famously ran the boot camp for the actors. You know, we can talk about that. But again, the trivia on this is all over the Internet. And very famously, he did a six day boot camp for the principal actors, minus Matt Damon, because he kind of wanted them to hate Matt Damon in real life, too. And so he excluded he excused Matt Damon from the boot camp training, but made everybody else go through it, which, by the way, All of those actors, three or four days in, voted to give up. They wanted to stop the boot camp because it was too hard. And Tom Hanks was the only one who had been through it before. On Forrest Gump. Yeah. Out for Forrest Gump. Thank you. And he was the one that was like, now we're not doing that. And of course, his vote carries a lot more weight. So they had to finish this six-day boot camp. And Dale Dye, you know, being a former Marine, is giving him hell as best he can. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting how... Just how difficult it is to make a historically accurate film. It's really hard. Well, I think Tom Hanks had said that uh, that he went through it before, so he knew what it was going to be like. A lot mm-hmm. of the other guys thought they were going to be like, 
camping and swapping stories or something. Right. But he was right. like, this is not going to be fun. Yeah, no. He had him sleeping in the dirt and in the mud and the rain. And he was like, look, I mean, Marine Corps boot camp nowadays is like 13 weeks. You know, I think during World War II, they did have reduced versions. And I'm assuming that basic training depending on the service but in general it was probably two months and then you still had to do some additional training for whatever specialty you were doing six days is nothing you know compared to right. actual military training so it's kind of funny that well tom sizemore is probably getting the shakes at that point oh you bet yeah we do have to talk about that <laughs> so before we go much further let's let's kind of break down the plot yes please We've gone in depth on D-Day, but let's talk about the framing device. I think that is universally the thing that is looked at. As shit? Oh, the bookends, you mean? Yeah, yeah. The framing device being that this is an old man remembering the experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's a very poorly done framing device because obviously he would have no idea what happened before they came and picked him up. Well, I think it's also because they the idea of it is... That you don't know who he is. Oh, yeah. He could be anyone. Yeah, okay. I get that. He's probably Tom Hanks. Well, no, the I, I think the idea is definitely that he is Captain Miller at the beginning of the film. That's what they want you to think. They do right, the transition right. and it's like onto the same eyes. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they're fucking with you, but poorly. Yeah. Sure. But I mean, watching it the first time, I don't think it's unreasonable to be like, oh, okay, this is old Tom Hanks remembering or old Captain Miller remembering his experience. Like, that's obviously how the movie's setting it up, right? Uh, yes. I think that is, uh, it's doing a bait and switch for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. When I first initially watched it, I fell for it. But now, as someone several years later, it's like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie like three times. It's something that really sticks out to me and it feels like a bait and switch because of how very vague it is and usually if you're going to start off a movie by if it was say it was from miller's perspective you're going to start off the movie with that guy talking a little bit about it and then we fold into it whereas just silent old man is a little too cipher he could be anybody like liam said so I don't hate the framing device. I just think it's pointless. I understand why it exists. It was something that films did. You know, it was a popular thing to do in the 90s, but... It was very 1998. It, it's one of those things. That I get why they did it. This is not a purposeless thing. The framing device is part of the message of the film. Mm -hmm. It is. It is meant to convey the effect of this kind of conflict and war on one individual man. Especially with, we find out it's Matt Damon, and seven men died just to bring him to bring him home. That weighs on someone so very much. And here's here's something that gave me a differing perspective, though. I was listening to NPR recently, and they had a guy on there who was talking about how you know he's one of the last World War II vets, and he was talking about how in his very first conflict, he killed two German soldiers who were trying to trying to surrender and how that weighed on him and how he had never told anyone that until this interview with NPR. And he initially was like, and that's all I want to say. I don't want to talk about this anymore. And then later he contacted them and wanted to speak out about it. And so while I was watching this, 
I had that moment of listening, of flashing back, listening to this old man who's at this point, you know, 95, 96, talk about his experience. And I was like, okay, I can see, I can see the point and I'm more sympathetic to it than I would have been not having listened to that because I think the whole point and purpose of that framing device is to tell the audience how much something like that impacts you for the rest of your life. Yeah. I, I think that of all the great reviews this film got, and I'm sure Katie, you know more because you've read more of them directly, but if the critics were going to criticize something, they definitely criticized the prologue and the epilogue, the bookends of the film. I didn't have time to go back and listen to friendly fires first episode that was on saving forever ryan but i do remember their opinion may possibly john's opinion being that the bookend sucked and that he would have just removed them from the film well i think also uh the tell me i'm a good man yes bit was turned into a running joke for for the guys yes it did and i agree i'm not going to turn that into a joke myself however i think the intent there is spielberg trying to make this for his father and trying to make it for veterans, I think is trying to draw a direct link between modern audiences and their aging family members who may have participated in this war, who famously did not really talk about their experiences. Right. And in 1998, this would have been like the perfect time to release this movie for that message. Right. Several. Well, look at the actor who plays the elder Matt Damon. He, and I think he was uh, 70 when this was he made. was 68 playing someone in their mid 70s. He was 14 at the time of the D-Day landing. So he just missed the war by like two or three years. So he's the right age. Right. You know, he's a, just a touch young. But I think the point Spielberg's trying to make is understand what some of these older guys who aren't talking about their experiences a lot might have actually gone through. And I'm sure this film did that. I'm sure this film prompted a lot of conversations between families and their grandparents who participated in World War II before they were gone to actually ask them, hey, do you want to talk about this? What did you do during the war, etc.? So I get the intent. And I'm always embarrassed to be like, let me make a Steven Spielberg film that's grossed, you know, a bajillion dollars, like better. But if I could take a second to do a Dan makes it better segment. Can. If I had my way, I would remove the bookends completely. <laughs> when the film starts on the hedgehog with D-Day, Omaha Beach, you know, June 6, 1944, I would open the film with that. And I would end the film with the end of the Battle of Ramel. I think the rest of it can be understood. I would trust the audience to be smart enough to kind of like put two and two together and go talk to their families. However... If I maintain and respect Spielberg's intent and I say, okay, let's have those bookends. The main thing that I would do, I would probably leave the opening one the way it is, but I would cut down the ending way more. I would take all the dialogue out of it, including Captain Miller's final line of earn this, which again, I think is way too schmaltzy and way too cheesy. I would take all of that out. And if you have the character, you know, looking at the grave and you see that the grave marker is the same name as the captain that he served under. And then he salutes it. And then he walks away with his family. If you want to throw the American flag in there, great. I will give this movie a pass because it does not fall into the overly patriotic, 
I'm just so glad I could die for my country and like some of the stuff they did and we were soldiers. Like this film does not (sighs) really do that outside of the American flag opening and closing the film. It never really jumps on the opportunity to have a line about patriotism, about dying for your country, about beating the Nazis because it's the right thing to do. Well, and a perfect example of that, Dan, is the scene where Captain Miller is telling his troops. You know, if going to Ramel and finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then, then that's my mission. That's such a perfect example of what you're talking about. Do you remember like going to your grandfather's birthday party? <laughs> sure. Yes. We had we often had joint birthday parties me and my grandfather. When when somebody would uh, like a 2-year-old would come in and bring him the card and be like pop pop Billy says <laughs> happy birthday like real loud into his ear. <laughs> That's what it feels like this is the filmmaking equivalent of. Right. It's like in case you didn't notice everything that's going on that we're having this birthday party for you. Let me shout it in your fucking ear so that you know that I made this film for you and that I want you to not miss any of the thing. Like I wrote the card in big letters in crayon, but I need to now yell what I wrote in your ear just to make sure that you know that we did this for you. Like that's the thing that drives me a little bit crazy. The intent behind it, Sure, but the execution is like... Liam, you are describing my grandfather's birthdays right now. I'm describing everybody's <laughs> grandfather's birthdays okay. right now. No, I, I say this because my... But my grandpa, he was uh, uh, mostly deaf in one ear and so wasn't able... He was given the, like, you can't go to war because you're a liability because you can't hear anything. He's 4F. Yes, thank you. But he drove trucks and did other stuff during the war. But him, he, he and I, our birthdays were two days apart. So he and I bonded very well. So, yeah, I was the kid screaming in his ear. Grandpa, here's a card. How you doing? As he's smoking like <laughs> two cigarettes at once right next to my face. <laughs> Drinking brandy, of course. My grandfather, the sergeant major, George Masick, died before I was born. So I never got to meet him. Mm-hmm. But my uh, my mom's father, Robert O'Leary, only checked out like a few years ago. Oh. And it was not for death, not trying. Like came for him a few times by the time he went, he was so fucking ready to go. He was on his deathbed and they asked him, can we get you a priest? And he said, you can get me a gin and tonic. (laughs) (laughs) He's definitely your grandpa. Oh, my fucking hero. Right. I was sitting there next to his bed and he was like, (laughs) he falls asleep and everybody's like, is this it? And then it's like, and he wakes back up and it's like, Oh, Jesus. Okay. And yep. I'm sitting there, you know, and he like went to sleep. He closed his eyes and then he woke back up and I was like, how you doing there, Pop? And he was like, man, heaven won't take me and hell keeps spitting me back out. Oh, no. <laughs> but he <sighs> was like everybody's grandfather's my age. He also served in World War Two. There are very few photos of him serving in World War Two. He did not stick around to be a military. He was not career. He was in it when he was in it. And then he went home when he was done. Because he was uh, he was a tail gunner in Burma, Ooh. which I've been told is bad. Yeah, that is not the place where you wanted to be necessarily. And I had to do a report in eighth grade where you had to like interview a veteran who's in your family. Oh, that's cool. And like they gave you like this list of questions. And my oh, grandfather yeah. was the least fucking helpful interview subject <laughs> in goddamn history. 
The only thing he would tell me is if they start the draft again, I'm smuggling your ass to Canada. Wow. (laughs) He did not care for being in the military during World War II. It was not his bag. So we've talked about the framing device. So here's the thing with the framing device, and this is going to go right into my, some of my structural issues with the movie itself. So you remember when we were talking about Patton and how George C. Scott didn't want the big speech to be first Mm -hmm. because then who gives a shit about everything else? Right. Is this not like the prime example of that? Did they blow their load at the beginning? Is that what you're saying, Completely Liam? Completely blew their load at the beginning. Yeah. Because they really didn't have a lot to do. And, and God damn it, it didn't have to be this way. Because there's a lot of interesting character development stuff that happens in the middle, but could have been better. And you bookend it with like two pretty visceral battles. I get it. But like you could have easily cut a half hour out of the middle. And had a tighter movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And a better movie. It was just structurally, it really starts to sag in the middle. And this time watching it, I was able to pick up on some more of the character nuance mm-hmm. than I was the first time or two watching it back in the day. And it's an unevenness in the writing because you go from the bookends, the ham fisted, like lead pipe to the temple kind of. This is what I'm trying to say. And then you go into the D-Day scene where you actually do get some really neat character development as far as the relationships go on the fly. Captain, if your mother saw you do that, she'd be very upset. I thought you were my mother. Toss away lines like that. Some punch-up writer was earning his paycheck on that scene. So I I felt the same way, Liam. And then so I read Roger Ebert's review of this and he talks about how this opening scene is meant to give us an idea of what these men have gone through and they go through fucking hell and then are given the task go rescue this kid so he can go home to his mama because the war department feels bad that three three of her boys have died and we can't Mm. have another one die it's meant to inform our opinions about their attitude because they all got attitude about having to go do this. And I think that's supposed to inform us as to why they feel that way. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. I don't know if it works for me as well as it did for him, but I do agree that I think that's what Spielberg is going for is to give us the idea of these men have been through hell. Whereas Matt Damon's character despite being a paratrooper and all of that is obviously not gone through those same experiences. And so they feel conflicted about possibly, and eventually for most of them spending their lives trying to get this kid home to his mama. Yeah. And I I think I get the distinction of what you guys are both talking about in the sense that most of the D-Day scene feels so different from the rest of the film. And I would say that that scene actually ends like before Tom Hanks is watching the dudes drinking coffee and eating sandwiches up at the top of the bluff and like it's over, right? They've they've overcome the defenses. I think that the section you guys are talking about ends when Tom Hanks kind of reunites with his squad because that's when you start to get into character development, right? Because you don't get to see any of the other guys in the squad go through the D-Day landing 
they obviously just did, but none of them are on camera for that part. It's really intimate and you are with either random soldiers or the action, quote unquote, or with Tom Hanks's character of Captain Miller. Like that dude right. who gets headshotted twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he takes his helmet off. I'm like, what do you, why, why? Well, I thought I actually liked that. I thought it was good that it was like that dude just went into shock. <laughs> and it's a bit of dark comedy. You get a yeah. few instances like that in the, in the film. Right. And, uh, yeah, I think the lesson is definitely do not take your helmet off in this movie or your fucking toast. Yeah. But yeah, my, my son was very much in favor of Mike, the Tom Sizemore character going through this. <sighs> so relatable. I mean, Tom Sizemore gives maybe the best performance of his life. And granted, maybe this isn't like method acting or anything like that. But I feel like the inherent violence that is inside of tom sizemore as a person like he's been involved in plenty of domestic violence incidents and like i think he probably has a temper issue in general i mean what a perfect character for him to be in this situation where he's older and kind of probably maybe just slightly older than his character should be because tom sizemore is like 37 38 right but you get the vibe about that guy that he should have been promoted and just wasn't because he's a dick well, and he's he's the sergeant, isn't he? He's like the senior sergeant. He's either a master sergeant or a tech sergeant, but he's like an E7. You know, he's been around the block. He's probably been in the military for like 12 to 15 years, and he knows what's going on. And of course, he's the officer's right-hand man, right? Right. He he greases the wheels for everything for for his commander. Yeah, so Captain Miller doesn't have to get his hands dirty. Captain Miller isn't the one who has to threaten people saying, you know, we're going to charge you with desertion. I'm going to shoot you in the fucking head. Or I'm going to shoot right? you in the fucking head. The sergeant gets to do all that. And yeah, like if I've watched a lot of Tom Sizemore, I really like his performances. Again, he's had a pretty tumultuous personal life, but I think that this is one of his best performances. And if you look into the trivia, there's an instance where they explain that Tom Sizemore at the time of the filming of this was going through withdrawals, I believe for heroin, maybe cocaine, maybe both. And this was well known to everyone, including Steven Spielberg, basically made a deal with him and said, listen, we wrote this role for you and it's yours and I want you to do it, but you're going to take a drug test every day. And the day you fail that test, we're going to fire you and we're going to reshoot all of your character scenes. And so some of the sweating and intense stress that you see in Tom Sizemore's face is coming from a person who's was actually, actually Tom Sizemore's hand that was shaking. They, they just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just handed him a compass. They were like, here, hold this compass in this map real quick. You're going to be Tom Hanks's hand model for a second here. Hold this canteen. <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> I'll tell a little story to the listeners. If you like my Charlie Sheen anecdote, you're going to like this one. I was hanging out in L.A. near my sister's place a few years ago. I think your sister's just getting you in trouble more. Often I don't know. Than she not. wasn't there for this one. It just happened okay. near her house. I was actually with her ex-husband. So me and my brother-in-law at the time uh, go to CVS to like buy some drinks and some other stuff, whatever. So we're standing in line at the CVS and... This guy, and it's like a snaky line, so this person is maybe six feet ahead to my left, but facing me, right? I'm not looking at the back of him, and he looks a lot like Tom Sizemore, and he's like dressed in, he's got his hair dyed brown, he's wearing these pink furry boots, like he's kind of in this crazy outfit, and he's kind of like moving around and talking to himself and like looks a little bit off, you know? A little sketchy. Yeah, a little sketchy and kind of talking to himself, looks a little bit high, and I was like, okay, check it out. I was like, that guy looks a lot like Tom Sizemore. 
And my brother-in-law, who's kind of an idiot, despite the fact that he went to Hollywood to be an actor, he's like, who's Tom Sizemore? And I was like, you know, the sergeant in Saving Private Ryan. And he's like, kind of like vaguely. And I was like, oh, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that is. And I was like, and so I start telling the story about how Tom Sizemore was going through heroin withdrawals. And this whole story that I just told about Spielberg and the drug tests and all of that. And of course, me being a loud as fuck dude, uh, I'm talking too loud. And this person. As an Italian, I find that wildly unbelievable. Right. Who? uh, When am I ever too loud? Were you using your hands too? Probably. So this person is starting to get like more and more agitated the more that I'm talking and I'm realizing that he's hearing my story and he's getting agitated by it. And he's got these crazy eyes and he looks over at me and I can hear him kind of muttering under his breath, but it was loud enough that I could hear it. And he goes, I can't fucking believe this shit. And he storms past me and out of the CVS and just like leaves the line. And I was like, okay, that was kind of weird. And so I talked to my brother-in-law and I was like, huh, I don't know what that guy's problem was. And he's like, uh, you know, that might've been Tom Sizemore. And I was like, what? I'm like, no, dude, he was wearing pink furry boots. Like he looked crazy. I'm like, that's not Tom Sizemore. He's like, and he kind of like puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, bro, I've been living in Hollywood for a long time. And let me tell you, if there's one thing I've learned, if you think you see someone famous, it's probably that person. And so all of a sudden the reality of what just happened came crashing down you're on just me. talking shit on Tom yeah. Sizemore. And, <laughs> a, I realized that I could have just got my ass beat by Tom Sizemore in the middle of a CVS in Burbank. But B, I realized that like this actor who like I kind of like and respect as an actor and would love to like, you know, interview him or talk to him or whatever. I just totally shit all over him right in front of his face, which is something I wouldn't do even to someone who I dislike because I'm just not that rude. Right. Like I'm a loud mouth, but I'm not impolite like that. And so <laughs> so I go home and I feel <laughs> terrible about it. I tell my wife at the time I tell my sister the story and they're just like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. But also like, oh, it's OK. I don't feel bad. I'm sure it happens to him all the time, whatever. But. I ended up feeling bad enough that I typed up an email. Like I wrote a whole letter apologizing to Tom Sizemore I was like, Hey, Mr. Sizemore, I just want to say, I'm really sorry that happened. Had I known it was you, I would have never told that story right in front of your face. Like I wasn't trying to be rude, whatever. And I sent it out to like on Facebook messenger on his profile. And like I sent it out oh, in two no. or three places and he actually did respond to me on Facebook. And he was, because oh of course, my whole letter was like, and, you know, if you ever want to tour San Francisco Tower, like, please look me up. You know, I really I'll buy you dinner. You know, I was just trying to apologize because I really felt bad. And he writes back and goes, uh, yeah, that was me. Yeah, I remember you. And this is like that night, you know, it's like only a few oh. hours later. But he goes, yeah, I remember oh you. God. He goes, no apology necessary. Like. Don't worry about it, you know, and he was actually really nice about it. And that was like the extent of our interaction. But uh, yeah. Oh, my Um, God. If anyone ever sends him this because they hear his name mentioned, I just want to go on record and say, Mr. Sizemore, I'm really sorry I did that. That was rude of me. No judge for your addiction, bro. You're a great actor and you you pulled through and you gave a great performance. And I also hear that he wrote most of the dialogue for the face off with him and Ed Burns. Yes, he ad-libbed a lot of that. Oh, and it's so good. There are a few scenes of ad-libbing in this film. One of them is Matt Damon telling the story about the ugly girl and hanging out with his brothers and all of that. That was made up by Matt Damon. They initially thought about pulling it because when they looked at it, they were like, this isn't really all that funny or interesting. But Spielberg decided to leave it in because he was like, this actually sounds like a real story. And I actually like the fact that it's not that 
well scripted because it's just someone talking. Right, it's a character moment. Exactly. So they kept that in there. It's a good character moment. Tom Sizemore's aggression towards Ryben when he's trying to desert. Definitely, he came up with a lot of those lines himself. It is one of the scenes I see criticized by veterans where they're like, there's no way an experienced sergeant in the Rangers would point a gun at another soldier's face. Then why don't you just do it, Sarge? Do it, man. Put one in my leg and give me that million dollar I'm going to shoot you in your big goddamn mouth. And so I asked uh, Micah, our resident expert on the army and infantry leadership, because that's certainly his field. And honestly, the consensus between Micah and some of the trivia I was reading is, look, this is a different time where these are... You know, to a certain extent, citizen soldiers. Most of these guys were drafted. Now, granted, the Rangers are still an elite force and they go through more serious training than regular troopers. But the fact that exasperation and lack of sleep and all of that would have been striking everyone's nerves for the time period. He's like, I don't necessarily see this as implausible that it would have happened, that he would have pointed a gun at someone. Well, never mind the fact that that is... I mean, I'm not a military man, as I Mm -hmm. think we've established very well in this project. But even I know desertion in the face of the enemy will get you fucking murdered. Like, just put against a wall and shot nine times out of ten. Yes. It only happened a few times in World War II, like, that they actually went through with a couple of executions for desertion. But a good couple of dozen people got sentenced to be executed again. The government didn't end up going through with it, except in a couple of cases. But that is the punishment for desertion. Yeah, like you don't just get to go because you Hmm. don't like the order. Right. If it's an unlawful order, there are avenues for that. Right. It feels like the exception was that he wasn't saying like, fuck this, I'm going home. It was fuck this, I'm going back and doing something that means something to the military. I'm not here to rescue this one guy. I'm here to fight this war. Yeah, he was like, fuck this unit, and I'm going to go. Which is still still desertion. So I know Liam wants to talk about what doesn't work for him in the storytelling here, or we want to talk about what does work and what doesn't work. I was talking to my friend Seth, and he brought up some really good points about kind of what he thought the overarching theme of the film was, and I wanted to talk about that because I think you see the director's hand and the storytelling trickle down to all these little vignettes and all these little set pieces that are happening. And this theme reoccurs in different ways. And what I think that theme is, is so one, is it fair in general that we are risking the lives of eight people to save one guy because we feel sorry for his mom? And two, what is the right thing to do And what is the decent thing to do? And can we find our decency as as men, as humans in the midst of this god awful shitty mess, as Sergeant Horvath says at the end of the film? And that is brought up both in the actions that are represented here by the soldiers and how they deal with what they're doing and also in their side conversations. Most of the character development kind of revolves around this idea. So I know we'll talk about these these instances in more detail, but from Caparzo getting killed by the sniper and the bloody letter being taken by Wade from him and passed around, they're transcribing it. They're in the church talking about, you know, Wade is talking about his mother and kind of the implicit idea is his regrets over how he wished he had talked to his mother more. He doesn't know if he's going to see her again. And 
I mean, the, the letter gets passed down and basically everyone who takes that letter is killed until Ribon takes it at the end and then supposedly gets it back to Cabarzo's parents. But that letter represents this concept of, is it worth all these lives that we're risking here for what we're doing? And is this mission worthwhile? And within the greater context of that question, you see these instances come up like the assault on the radar station. You know, they have a discussion whether they should be doing that, whether it's the right thing to do, and then whether they should let go of the POW, whether they should shoot him and up him kind of brings his morality into the issue. And that carries all the way to the end of the film. So I did see Spielberg and the writer here trying to sort of nestle this idea into every scene, but again, in a slightly different context. I think this is a good opportunity to talk about a a little bit of character development the story does, because... Like you said, Dan, it it almost uses vignettes Mm -hmm. throughout the whole thing. Like each scene is a little bit of its own thing. So they're in the small town in France that's being shelled when Paul Giamatti comes into things, which I loved. Love Paul Giamatti. So great. Loved it. So good. I mean, his fucking like trench foot little hobble that he's got is he's like dancing through the rubble. It's so like what a great character walk. Right. This is kind of the first scene where we see the whole unit as one because Upham was not part of the the D-Day push. He is a map maker and translator, says he's never, you know, shot a gun before outside of basic training. In the few scenes that lead up to this, he's kind of being razzed and poked at to say like, Are you really tough enough to be here with us? He doesn't know what foobar means. Foobar. 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 Yeah, look at foobar in the German dictionary. There's no foobar in there. (laughs) Yeah, he does not know what foobar means, which I was like, "Mm." Well, I mean, I knew what foobar was before I saw this in high school, but I hung out with (laughs) nerds, very foul-mouthed nerds. So I think, you know, the, the scene in the town where they come in, Germans are actively destroying the town and we get the first death in the team with Vin Diesel's Caparzo character where he does what we learn generally not a good idea is to go against what Tom Hanks says. Mm-hmm. And he goes and tries to I, I don't know why he thought this, but rescue and rescue her from what she's in a living room. Because it looks like his niece. I don't know. That was the stupidest fucking thing. You can't do anything for her. And, you know, you know that, you know, those French parents afterwards were like, oh, shit, that was the wrong idea. And and that little girl is slapping her dad like, why did you do this to me? What the hell? I was like, fair. Go, girl. Absolutely fair. It's the first moment in the film where we see this ragtag brought together team face a huge obstacle together. And we see people die. We see, uh, and we get to see Jackson. Jackson in action. In his prime as the sniper. And it really starts the moments of character development for everybody outside of Tom Hanks. Like from Tom Hanks, you know, it's it's been from the beginning that we're getting him. But I think the thing that each of these little scenes that we see really does is each character gets a minute or two. For some, a couple more, like Tom Size more, to make a huge impact on the audience. And they all use it amazingly. In particular, I would say Barry Pepper and Vin Diesel. Like both of them have 
such a big impact on the film, even though, like I said, they get almost no screen time. I don't know about if I agree about the Vin Diesel aspect. And even we've talked about this being like Vin Diesel's breakout role. I never remember his character. Okay, but he is the one who starts off the deaths. Yes, he's the first one to die. And he has the letter that then gets passed around and is almost the death knell. I'm not saying the character's unimportant as far as like the role that he fills, but I don't feel like the character itself is that memorable. Being the first one to die and then the letter that he wrote, like the letter is more memorable than the character was, I think. I went into this watching it 20 years later and was like, where's Vin Diesel at? I mean, I I definitely think he's more of a supporting character than the other supporting characters, if that makes sense. He plays a specific role. He does, but it's short and it's not that fleshed out and he dies before everybody else. So he's almost more of a metaphor in the, the storytelling than he is an actual character. Here's my opportunity to talk about archetypes because there's a lot of archetypes going on in this film and Vin Diesel is very much one. He is the strong because he's he's supposed to be Italian in this and the strong softy. Yeah, who he's got to save the little girl and he's gruff and built and all of that and and this film really dives into archetypes and that's not necessarily a criticism. Yeah, archetypes are different from stereotypes. Exactly, Mm. but I do think it's a fact. And in this kind of film, archetypes are absolutely a useful thing to employ. You don't have time to develop these characters as being totally individuals like you do in something like Full Metal Jacket. In this movie, we only kind of have time for archetypes to set up the story and the emotional beats that Spielberg was looking for. And they do successfully differentiate all the characters quickly and very efficiently. Something that We Were Soldiers did not do, for example, right? Like you really just didn't learn anything. Right. And that's definitely the the whole thing of an archetype is they are very much an individual idea of a person without mm-hmm. being a unique character, if you will. Right. And I do think that, I think this actually dabbles in both. For good and ill, it utilizes archetypes but it also dabbles in stereotypes as well. Hmm. I would say that like one of the disappointing things to me is that Mellish's leading character note is that he's the Jewish one. Very obviously. Which honestly, the only thing that saves that character from being that in my mind is how he dies. Cause he has the hardest kill in the entire fucking movie. And it is rough. So, like, I remember that more than him being the Jewish guy. But, like, the second thing that I remember about him is that he is the Jewish one. He'll have to kind of tell me where you think this is at in terms of storytelling. But they they take the fact that he's Jewish to, like, a more serious place where he kind of has the breakdown when he's looking. He gets the Hitler youth knife and he's looking mm-hmm. at all the soldiers. And at first he's kind of talking shit to them. He's like, you didn't you like I'm a Jew, like, fuck you. And, yeah. you know, you SS bastards, whatever. And then he kind of has a breakdown, which was interesting because it made me think like, OK, the illusion here seems to be that he's thinking about the Holocaust and like how many Jews have been killed in the war, which they didn't know. about. Yeah. That felt very anachronistic, honestly. Well, okay. But hold on. 
that was my initial thought. And I think it's easy to think that way. And that's, I'm not saying necessarily that's not what the movie's trying to show, but it is slightly ambiguous because they don't explain, he doesn't talk about what he's upset about specifically. And so I started thinking about the history and I started thinking about what this character could be thinking about in particular. And I realized that while possibly the filmmakers were talking about the Holocaust and in between the lines of this scene. Steven Spielberg was absolutely talking about the Holocaust. He's done like three documentaries about, about the Shoah. Sure. sure. And this is after Schindler's list. Yeah. He's definitely making allusions to it, which not a problem. I think that's fitting. That's fine. I'm saying there are other plausible interpretations of that scene. If you're willing to open yourself up to some nuance and When it comes to that, I care a little bit less about what the filmmaker's intent is because I'm like, well, if the scene allows room for interpretation, I'm happy as a viewer to take that interpretation and run with it. And Jewish folks at the time would definitely have known about things like Kristallnacht and the Nazis' hatred for Jews. Exactly. Yeah, they knew that shit was bad. So Mellish could very well be thinking about European Jewish relatives of his who have been killed they just don't have to be have been killed in the Holocaust because for the last 10 years, 15 years, things have been pretty right. bad for Jews in Europe, especially in Germany. So he could very easily, as I know, you know, friends of my family and stuff have stories of escaping Nazi Germany like well before the Holocaust. Yet some of those people oh, yeah. still got killed, even though they weren't killed in a mm-hmm. concentration camp. So I think Spielberg is probably pointing towards the Holocaust. But if you were to say, well, but the average soldier would not have known about the Holocaust at this time. I don't think it makes the scene unrealistic because it's like there are lots of things he could be upset about in thinking about his family. No, I'm not going to say that it's unrealistic for anybody to be crying after the D-Day invasion, which right. is when that scene happens. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, and Jewish folks were very connected to their people back in Europe. And it's not unlikely that he could have come there and, you know, as a child, like it it makes sense. It makes absolute Mm -hmm. sense that this would have been something that was known. But it also and I think this is one of those rare instances where it kind of works in Spielberg's favor because it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility in any way, shape or form. But it also then hints at a statement slash judgment about the Holocaust. Yeah, he gets to have his cake and eat it, too. Exactly. Yeah. So like there's there's him. There's Barry Pepper, who is the Baptist bumpkin who's really good at shooting things. Right. And sleeps like a baby at night. Exactly. The sleeps like a baby part is probably the best character development for that character. (laughs) That's a a nice little touch to it. So it it does deal mostly in archetypes, but it's weird how it is like, oh, well, this will just be the guy with Brooklyn on the back of his jersey. Right. And how do you not get that guy to be played by Ben Affleck in this fucking movie? I know, right? They cast Matt Damon because they didn't know that Goodwill Hunting was going to happen the year before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He was cast as an unknown. You could have just got Ben Affleck instead of getting Edward Burns as Ben Affleck. Yeah, but Edward Burns, I think, is from New York. Ben Affleck's from Boston. So they wanted a New York. Oh, guy. Okay. So they wanted a New York guy. <laughs> I mean, I'm just guessing, but obviously that's the difference. <laughs> I agree with you with that with the exception of captain Miller and maybe Wade, the medic a little bit. Most of the character development here is done through archetypes and tropes. Ribin is the tough, you know, grew up in a tough neighborhood in Brooklyn guy. And Mellish is 
the Jewish guy. And they're all kind of snarky and cynical, obviously, with the exception of Upham. They're all very young men. That's the other thing. And guess what? You don't ever get to know where Upham's from because nobody cares. Because fuck him. Which, interestingly enough, that was Roger Ebert's favorite character. Oh. And he said this. I don't know if you maybe knew what you were saying, dude. He said, he's like, this is the character I identified with the most. And I feel like it's the character most audiences will identify with the most. That was his point. I know it was, but also. The point of Upham is to be the the window in. He's in satire. Right. You'd call him the naive. He has to have yes, things explained yes. to him, right? Like how things work. Yeah, he has to have things explained right. to him. He's the every man that is supposed to be there. But at the same time. He's also a total piece of shit. Exactly. Nobody wants to be Upham. If this movie veers into propaganda at all, it is in the character of Upham being the one that most people will view as the person they could relate to. I don't feel like I could relate to Upham at any point throughout this because he's just such a fucking... I would totally have been up him. And the movie judges me very, very harshly for that. I don't think that you would have been up him, Liam. I do think I would have been up him. I would have been the dude with the typewriter. You are way too brash and invested in presenting yourself in a certain way to go for up him. Oh, sure. I'm way too brash sitting at my desk in my weighted Snuggie in my house. I am not the gung-ho hoorah person. It is comical that I am on a war film podcast. I think it's delightful. It, it is. I am, I am pretty swell. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Like, I would have been like, I'm sorry, you want me to go where and do what with which gun? That is that is my character. Liam, if someone was trying to kill me and you were the only person that could come and help me, I firmly believe that you would come and help me. I'm sure. But yep. the fact that up until that point, he is supposed to be our guy, our window in. And then spoiler alert, he's a fucking coward. I think it's a statement. I think it is a statement. And I think it's kind of an indictment of people who don't want to go to war. No, no, I don't think, I don't so. think so at all. No, I think it, I think Upham is meant to be the every man. He has to find his way and he does by the end. Does he? Because his finding his way is killing a dude who had surrendered. So Upham, I think, is in some way supposed to be an entry point for the audience in that he is as much a combat trooper as most of the people in the audience. Like, yes, he went to boot camp, but, you know, he studied the classics and he speaks languages and he can type and write letters and all that. He he he, made it through boot camp just enough. He's a soft boy. Yeah, he's the nerd, right? He's skilled. Let's just throw him where we don't have to worry about him. So it's not to say that everyone in the audience would be up them or that if you're not a fierce warfighter, you're a coward. I think it's just supposed to help you connect with someone who's not an experienced combat trooper because most of the people watching this film are not going to be that person. I right. don't actually think that the purpose of showing up them quote unquote, being a coward and not being able to help Mellish. And then later also realizing that his decision to influence Captain Miller to let Steamboat Willie go directly results in Steamboat Willie then shooting Captain Miller, spoiler alert, at the end of the film. I actually think that this is part of that overarching theme about how 
you can try and do the right thing in war, but war is chaos and things are not fair and you can't save everybody. And what you think is the right thing to do is not so black and white. And I think you see that throughout the film represented in all these different interactions. So for example, there are the Czech soldiers who surrender to the Americans when they're taking the bluff at the beginning of the film. And, you know, you don't know this until you look into it later, but they have their hands raised. And what they're saying, not in German, but in Czech, is please don't shoot us. We're Czech. We're not Germans. We didn't kill anybody. And the Americans then shoot them in cold blood, which arguably they're committing a war crime, according to the Geneva Convention. Well, they absolutely are. These are unarmed soldiers who have surrendered. And they're laughing about it. What do you say? What do you say? Look, I washed for supper. <laughs> That's a real sign of maturity for the film, because, again, unlike a lot of gung ho, patriotic John Wayne, older World War II films, this film draws things in a lot of gray. Now, yes, not always. We've talked about the prologue and the epilogue and the American flag and all that. But again, when you get into the conversations and the decisions that these soldiers are making in real time, patriotism and dying for country and treating POWs properly and all that is you see quite the opposite here. Even in a war where you would be excused to paint all of the Germans as the bad guys and all of the Americans as the good guys, as has been done hundreds of times. And Mm -hmm. this is arguably the last war where you could really say like, this was like the bad versus the good, right? All the other wars after this become way more gray. You could have gotten away with that. And yet that's not what Spielberg and the writer chooses to do. What he tries to do is show how similar the Americans and the Germans are actually in that they are both willing to do things that people think are wrong and that Upham trying so hard to do the right and decent thing ends up resulting in one of his friends being killed anyways, in that case, as a direct consequences of his actions. And so you can try all you want to reason your way through this war and use philosophy and emerson to figure out you know what the right thing to do is here and it's like no no the book says we can't shoot him we have to let him go right and everyone's arguing against yes. him. and as long as we follow the book everything will come out okay is is the attitude you get i think exactly so i think the cowardice is supposed to show that not everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing at all times and that war is challenging and that the decisions you make are not always clear cut and you're not always going to be able to do everything you're being asked to do and that it's difficult and chaotic and horrible. And some of that is displayed in Captain Miller's PTSD, his hand shaking, his moment of breakdown after the radar assault. Again, Upham has issues with firing a gun and he's kind of, you know, quote unquote, the coward. But all the characters have some kind of conflict, except maybe Jackson, <laughs> where doing the right thing is not necessarily in a manual. And even whether they should be on this mission at all or not, Captain Miller doesn't have any trite patriotic words for them when he says, well, look, think about what if you were Private Ryan's mother and what's the right thing? He doesn't say that, right? So there's some very gritty, real talk between a lot of these characters in ways that, I don't know, we don't usually see in a film that is for American veterans and is to a certain extent patriotic. I think that leads us really well into talking about the the radar ambush. This is where I think 
we see Miller make the questionable choice, right? In that everybody is like, should we really be doing this? Does this fit in with our mission here? Like, why are we going about this? And he kind of pressures them into like, no, this is what we're doing. I don't want to hear anything about it. We're going for this. And it's a fucking unmitigated disaster for the most part. Uh, they lost their medic, which is bad. Yes, but it's also the breakdown point for so much of the people. It is, but like when seven people take on a radar station and a machine gun nest that has already taken out like other people, losing one guy going up against a fortified position against pretty much even odds, that was a successful thing, right? Depends on how you look at it. Cost was admittedly high, but I mean, like, I don't know, in my mind, I'm kind of with Captain Miller on that one that it's like you can't there are other things that we have had to do along the way. Right. Well, it's a good thing you're not an infantry uh, officer, Liam, because I definitely think that veterans are mostly unanimous in agreeing that Captain Miller made a really bad call there. So like I said, I'm not a war guy. I'm not a military person. I also don't like to armchair quarterback combat military leadership that's depicted. It's a little uncomfortable to do that. So I asked Micah about it because he is an army captain. Mm -hmm. He has not been in combat. So even he's a little bit detached from this particular situation. But looking at it analytically, he's like, first of all, this is not their mission. And tactically, they absolutely should go around this radar position. They're going to use probably half their ammo taking it, which they need for the rest of their mission. They are also trying to assault a position where the ratio should be about three to one if you're going to be successful. That was the Napoleon standard, right? Yeah. If you're going to assault a well-defended position like that, Micah's opinion is you want a three to one ratio. Also, you would never do a frontal assault uphill against an entrenched position. Even Star Wars knows better than that. I have the higher ground, Anakin. Well, they have the higher ground. Again, the machine gun is going to be set up to mostly have a field of fire of whatever it is, you know, 120 degrees in front of it. Like those, I don't think those machine guns are that easy to turn around. So what you want to do is flank that position or assault it from behind at a very bare minimum. Also, they left up and behind. Because he's not good at shooting people. And they're like, you stay in the back with the gear and bring us more ammo, whatever. Why would you take the medic on that assault when the medic has not been shown to fire a gun the entire film? I don't even know if he's a conscientious objector or even has a rifle. He's basically probably bringing grenades up with them. But again, he is exactly the casualty you want to avoid, even if you do decide to do this assault, which I don't think was the right decision. And then, of course, their medic gets killed. Like, he's the most valuable person in that group, being someone with medical training. He is not the person you would take on that assault. So, now, some veterans point that out as an error in the film. They're like, oh, this is stupid, and an infantry captain would have never made this decision, and blah, blah, blah. And I disagree with that. I think that this is an error made by the character, not by the writers of the film. Right. I agree 100%. So, I think it's totally plausible that Captain Miller... So if he had not used this excuse, I could maybe question the writing a little bit more. But because Miller, in his exasperation with everyone disagreeing with him, goes, Oh, that's what you want to do, Mellish? Just want to leave it here so they can ambush the next company that comes along? I think his justification from an emotional perspective on why he wants to do it, I can get with and empathize with. 
It's just tactically a bad decision from a military tactics point of view. And yes, Liam is correct in the sense that it goes well because all of them should have been killed by a German machine gun nest that you're assaulting frontally from lower with ground. six dudes with six dudes like those right, are not right. good numbers whatsoever so it went well despite captain miller's decision right. it was a really bad decision so that's what i have to say about that from like a military standpoint but you know that does lead us into some interesting themes and interesting character development because we go from the argument before the assault to the argument after the assault and I think for me, the biggest point of Hanks's character deciding to do that is that it's, it, he's determined to make some kind of difference. And I don't think that he feels that this mission to rescue Private Ryan makes any difference whatsoever. And so it feels like that's the impetus for him. It's like, well, we can at least stop this. And he's so desperate that it drives him to make a pretty bad mistake it feels a little unearned just to jump back to things where we've seen poor decision making like this before Mm -hmm. in master and commander right when his hubris and his obsession with catching this guy who's like outsmarted him twice leads him to like chase the boat around the horn they lose the mast and they lose their guy and it's like bad juju all over the place right that's like sort of led up to in the filmmaking and the storytelling. Whereas this, it's kind of like, is that a bad decision? Am I just going with him because it's Tom Hanks saying it's a good idea? What is the impetus for that bad decision making? Is never quite clear to me. To try to salvage something that he feels of value. That's what I assumed. Yeah, I think the decision making, which is in this case coming from an emotional place, is to do something where he feels there's a direct impact on someone and that he's saving people instead of just watching people die, which is what has been happening, right? Before this, they have the scene in the church where he's talking to Mike and he says, Do you know how many men I've lost under my command? How many? 94. But that means I've saved the lives of 10 times that many, doesn't it? Maybe even 20, right? And so I think it's his frustration with this constant overarching theme of like, yeah, you're going to take all these guys to save this one dude. And it's unlikely many of you are going to make it out. And he's like, God damn it. What a waste. Right. Exactly. That's what he feels. Because like the number of firefights that they get into between Normandy Beach and finding Matt Damon even like the point when they find Matt Damon, when they like are ducking down in the wheat field or whatever mm-hmm, it is, mm-hmm. it's kind of a miracle that they only lost two guys along the way. Sure. Well, yeah, but it's also a movie. So. Right. Yes, definitely. In in reality, I don't think the army would have actually okayed this mission. I think what, it would, what they would have done is sent out messages and waited for these lost paratroopers to kind of reconvene. And then as companies were taking muster, once Ryan's name came up, the message would eventually get passed down that he would have been recalled, which is kind of what happened in the real story. Can I also just have one moment now that we're talking about how stupid the mission is to begin with and how it never would have happened? Sure. Why? Who's the guy who's like, we are going to get him the hell out of there. I think he's the secretary of the army. Can somebody explain to me 
in something that makes sense as to why he has the handwritten copy of the Bixby letter just tucked in a book for just such an occasion? No, because that's totally a um, conceit for the film. No, well, okay, hold on. (laughs) That's a famous letter that was printed in the newspaper. He didn't have like an old newspaper clipping from 100 years ago. He had a handwritten motherfucking letter that was all crinkly and folded and shit. That, I agree with you that there is not a chance in hell that that particular general would have had like the fucking Bixby letter. Because it's in obviously right. in a museum somewhere. So I kind of wrote that off to, I don't know, maybe someone transcribed it and then dumped some coffee on it to age it. I don't, I, don't, I can't explain. Somebody in the prop department did that. Exactly. I remember seeing this in the theater with my dad and we both kind of looked at each other and we were like, the Bixby letter, really? You just have the Abraham Lincoln letter? I never saw it as he had the actual letter. I guess I didn't stop to think that hard about what it looked like physically. But to me, why you would have a copy of it or why you would have the content of that letter is obviously because this is the kind of person who is in charge of thousands and thousands of troops. And he knows and has seen tons of messages like we see in that room with all the typewriter of these poor bastards whose entire job is just to continue mm-hmm. to notify next of kin that their sons have died, which sounds like the worst job on earth. And so I think it's, it's the condolences that are so well-written that he keeps with him because he wants to remember, you know, you can have something like that, like done up in calligraphy and framed on your wall. Right. And that would make sense. But like, Oh, I just happen to have this letter here right? from somebody a Lincoln, I believe his name was. <laughs> it is to a Mrs. Bixby. Like, <laughs> I agree with you that it would have been a better prop had it been a typewritten version of that letter. You don't just have the Bixby letter. Oh, wait, maybe that character is Nicolas Cage's grandfather <laughs> from... <laughs> From nope. National Treasure. Nope. And nope. he's been raiding museums his whole life, and that's nope. why. Yeah, it's it's nope. John Voigt's brother. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. I dismiss this at, out of hand. <laughs> out of hand. <laughs> so a few of the points I've been bringing up, I'm expounding on a previous conversation that I had with uh, my friend Seth. And uh, Seth runs this podcast called Snafu. Liam, you want to talk about FUBAR for a second? Yeah, the FUBAR was the uh, was the acronym for uh, Fucked Up Beyond All Recognition. Right. And SNAFU is a similar acronym that means... Situation Normal All Fucked Up. Exactly. There's also the combined version of SNAFUBAR, which is uh, Situation Normal All <laughs> Fucked Up Beyond Any Recognition, which is kind of oh. a nice sentence, too. Oh, but God. Anyways, besides the acronym itself, the podcast that Seth does called Snafu is a historical fiction drama which follows the story of a bomber crew in the early months of 1944. Sounds like Catch-22. You know, I've been reading Catch-22, and it does remind me a little bit of it. The cool part is that this is a one-man show, so Seth has spent eight years, you'd appreciate it, Liam, uh, writing this show, doing all the voices, despite the fact that he's not a voice actor, but, you know, he definitely does different voices. Well, his his, uh, resume, it sounds like, would say to the contrary. Yeah. he is a voice actor now, whether you uh, like it or he, not, Seth. He definitely is a voice actor. Um, <laughs> and he has written all the dialogue. And basically, the story is based on real bombing missions that happened over Germany in World War II. But they're all fictional characters and they're all fictional missions. The bomber group is fictional. It's 
March 1944, and the world is still at war. The American 8th Air Force are bombing targets deeper behind German lines and are taking grotesque losses at the hands of the German Luftwaffe and German flat guns. Only 25% of airmen are living long enough to finish their tour of 25 missions. With D-Day now on the horizon, things are getting desperate and the death toll for the 8th Air Force is only growing and will continue to grow as the lives of these airmen are now viewed as a necessary loss in order to win the war. Thrown into this hell is a 24-year-old pilot and his nine-man crew, who are not only about to experience the true horrors of war, but they're going to be experiencing it five miles above the Earth in a non-pressurized Boeing B-17 flying fortress named Loaded Bull. Now available on all podcast platforms comes Season 1 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast that tells the story of a group of men as their families never knew them. Just uh, Google Snafu podcast and you can check that out. He's a patron of ours. He listens to Danger Close and loves the show. And uh, yeah, if you want to listen more to some stories from World War II, go check out Snafu. Can I just say thank you for bringing that up? Because that is one of my other gripes with this movie is that I don't feel like it sounds like people from the 40s. Mm. The only person who sounds like... There were two instances where there was slang that I heard that sounded like it was slang from the 40s. And that was Steamboat Willie saying pretty much everything he's ever heard in an American film ever. Fancy schmancy, what a sense, go fly a kite, get back your tongue, cool beans. Betty Boo, what a dish. Betty Grable, my scams. <laughs> and Matt Damon. When he says that his brothers are dead and he goes on the level, on the level, that's the only time that somebody was like, what would they have said in 1944? All of the scenes of conflict felt a lot more 1990s than 1940s. I can see it to me. Am I weird? Am I like, am I mishearing that? No, but I, I have seen so 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 many movies from the 1940s so therefore i can say that you know who else has steven fucking spielberg for real dude should know how to make people speechy the talk talk but he also didn't he didn't write the screenplay for this no but uh tell me spielberg can't be like hey can you go throw some more 40s shit in this like this reads like it was written in 95 i think that that was kind of part of the point is that this is a movie that's supposed to appeal to it's supposed to bridge the gap, I think, between all these generations. But I think there's a juxtaposition to be made between the way people talked in the 40s and the shit that they were actually going through. Okay, but I don't think that you're getting, correct me if I'm wrong, you old movie viewers who are more experienced than me, but I don't think that someone watching a bunch of old movies from the 40s is necessarily the best material for that. You could be familiar with how screenwriters wrote scripts in the 40s and how actors performed scripts in the 40s. Yes. That's not necessarily how people talked. No. If you depicted soldiers in the 1940s, they're not going to have a mid-Atlantic accent like in the field, right? No, they're not. Some of them would. Yeah, maybe maybe like three. That was like a that was a a, a fake accent anyway that they made them talk like on purpose so that right. Cary Grant could play an American. Right. But there's cultural bleed everywhere. If you go to a movie and these people are talking like bonkers, 
it just wouldn't work even before the the time of you know hyper realism or method or you know before brando came on the screen grunting and trying to force feed women chewing gum the movies had to draw from the way people talked on the street and the way people talked on the street was drawn from the movies mm, yeah right. it was a very cyclical thing a lot of bleed there because if the movies sound too far fetched then nobody's going to go see them. Right. They're like, well, that sounds dumb. This was a big problem when talkies came out. Right. Yes. Oh, God. As anyone who's seen Singing in the Rain. Yeah, all you have to do is see Singing in the Rain. You know everything you need to know about the transition to talking pictures. But yeah, like they didn't know how to write dialogue necessarily. Like they, they drew from playwrights. So many movies from the 30s and 40s were based on stage plays. So they had to go to people who knew how to write dialogue and had been doing it for a long time. And they knew how to make words sound like people were saying them. I think that all depends on how much you are immersed in this movie and how much you enjoy the experience. Because while you guys have more experience with people's dialogue in different decades, it's just not something that really I even stopped to think about because there aren't any like atrocious misgivings i think in the dialogue or in yes. the speech rates liam i think this might be a complaint that only people like you and me and maybe my mom are really gonna have because most people who went to go see this did not watch mm. movies from the 1940s this is a problem i didn't have in 1917 there are examples of this being done well i don't disagree but i'm saying spielberg wasn't going for that I understand, and that's a problem that I have with this movie. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we're on the same page then. It would have been a better movie if they had done it differently. I don't disagree. You can look at something like Master and Commander. You can look at something like 1917, where the dialogue sounds perfectly natural in the time period that it's set. That's fair, and I think it's possible that had this movie been made 10 years later that maybe they would have done that. I don't know that for sure, but I'm saying, yeah, maybe it's still a product of the 90s. Spielberg would never have done that. That's not how Spielberg rolls. Fair. We've already talked about the framing device, so we'll just ignore that at the end and really talk about the real last final moments of this film, which is the battle at Rommel. And my understanding is that this is kind of a conglomeration of a bunch of different things, but... I think Dan has more specifics about that. Yeah. So it's definitely a fictional battle in a fictional place, but based on a little bit of history, the battle of Rommel never took place in real life. The town and the battle were both fictional. A German counterattack over the causeway at La Fiere by the 1057th Grenadier Regiment and light tanks of the 100th Panzer replacement battalion was the inspiration for the climactic battle in the film. And of course, this is the battle and the place where they finally find the titular Private Ryan at like an hour and 45 minutes into this film. And Katie, I know you wanted to talk about production design, and I think this is a great place to do it because the entire, so the bridge, the river, and the destroyed street scene of Rommel is all built on, in a field, basically. They, they got a, I believe it's in England, but it was a, old abandoned airfield I want to say that now was just overgrown with grass and so they took this whole thing and basically built a three foot rectangular lake is what that river is like if you pay attention to your scenes you'll notice the river isn't flowing 
So it's an artificial <laughs> canal that they built and then they built up the bridge and everything else around it. And interestingly, I think they did a really phenomenal job with. So the sniper scene from act one or act two, maybe is actually part of the same town set. They just filmed it in a slightly different corner, different location from different angles. So they were able to use that town set for both locations. And then, of course, this sets up a little bit more character development, introducing us to Matt Damon's character, Private Ryan, and him talking a little bit about his family history and his background and sort of the final push to try and accomplish this mission and get the hell out of this shithole. Someday we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god-awful shitty mess. It's one of my favorite lines in the uh, film. We've talked about character development a lot, so if we move past that part and just get to the actual action scene of the last act, because that's mostly what it is. It's an action set piece. Yes, I think the only character development that's really on display here, because at this point, everybody has been kind of set. And the the only character development that we really get in here is Upham. And Ryan. Yes, but Ryan, we haven't we haven't gone through this whole thing with. We've only right. he, he's just starting from our original ish crew. Upham is learning to deal with the realities of an insanely brutal battle mm-hmm. and both fails and mostly fails throughout the whole thing to really step up and play his part where everyone else is, you know, pretty much dying horribly. And it's only once at the very end that we see Upham step up. And I think I do want to say the production design in this is really, really culminates in this scene because the special effects are so amazing. And I had to keep reminding my husband as we're watching this, I was like, honey, no, this was made in 1998. There's so few digital effects in this. And the ones that are here are so obvious, like way, way back in the very beginning when they, they pan across the beach and you see all of the airships. What are those things called? I'm glad you brought that up. Kieran was asking, what's up with the Zeppelins? Those aren't Zeppelins. I was asking myself the same question, and it actually led me down a a very short rabbit hole that actually mentions the only African-American troops in this film that are not shown, but the product of their work is shown, which was a very interesting Time article, actually. When I looked at the balloons, I was like, what the hell are these things? I asked Dave, and Dave was like, they might be observation balloons. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you have all those observation balloons on the beach? Yeah, that's a lot of observation balloons. My first thought that they were to interfere with enemy aircraft from coming in and being able to strafe the beach because these balloons are there. Turns out that's correct. And they are put up on a metal cable. And so both the balloon and the metal cable are a problem for aircraft. Interestingly, the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion was the only African-American combat unit to participate in the D-Day landings. And I don't remember the date, but as of recently, the widow of an African-American soldier named Woodson was lobbying the government to get him a Medal of Honor for some combat he was involved in. And like, I don't have the whole story written down. But he was part of this 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion that would have put up these balloons. So interesting, the film did not show any of these black soldiers, but again, you see their handiwork. Their strange mission was to raise a curtain of hydrogen-filled balloons high over Omaha and Utah beaches. 
The steel cable that anchored the balloons to the ground served as a terrifying obstacle for German dive bombers. It could shear off a wing, and a cable strike also triggered a small bomb attached to just under the balloon that packed a potentially lethal punch for a hapless plane and snared in the trap. So they were anti-aircraft balloons, essentially. Interesting. Makes sense. But those are really the only truly egregiously obvious CGI. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, any CGI they used is is more old school that they blended in with traditional special effects. And ILM was hired to do actually most of the bullet hits on the beach are CGI. That was ILM's big job, but it wasn't advertised very much because Spielberg didn't want to turn people off and he wanted people to focus on the great job that they did with all the practical effects, which is most of the film. But yeah, in the D-Day scene, a lot of the bullet hits mixed in with real squibs are industrial light magic from his friend, George Lucas. Thanks, George. (laughs) Right. And that's the thing is the blending of the squibs with that digital effects is what makes it so well done. The other aspect of this film that we haven't necessarily touched on too much is the cinematography. Janusz Kaminski was the cinematographer who, of course, won an Oscar for this. And they are heavily responsible for the look of the film when it comes to the color gradients, um, the use of this grainy type film that they do. That was all Janusz's choice. Mm -hmm. And I think the cinematography is one of the things that a lot of stuff holds up with this film. But by far and away, the cinematography is one of the best things about it. How Janusz sets the stage, the color gradient really works because it feels very authentic to the time there's just enough of it feeling like a film stock without it overpowering everything and this is even watching it in 4k where when a director went a little overboard on those things previous to high definition you can really tell and in this it feels just right although i will say in this film you can then see the later excesses that it goes to. I'm looking at you, David Fincher, with your uh, over color correction and uh, filtering. Ramel is where they really give in to all of their impulses to just go over the top and show how debilitating war is after the D-Day scene. Like now we get to see them going through all of this yet again. Liam, how did you like the action set piece of the end? Uh, I thought it was great. Honestly, no, this is, this is the best part of the movie. Hmm. It honestly, really? It, it really is from a, from a narrative standpoint, from an action standpoint, from a filmmaking standpoint, the third act is actually the best part of the movie. The D-Day landing gets all the press and not undeservedly, mm-hmm. but the third act is almost like. Spielberg from 93, like peak Spielberg, jumped into a time machine and went ahead five years and made the end of this movie. It's Jurassic Park level skill. It is Jurassic. Mm. It's Jurassic Park and Schindler's List had a baby level skill. Mm. Oh my God. That would be a really fucked up baby. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. But uh, sub out the T-Rex for the tanks. Mm-hmm. You hear them coming a mile away. Oh, yeah. Right, right. You know, it's it's that kind of subtle tension building that Spielberg is actually really fucking good at mm-hmm. that he doesn't get to do in the rest of the movie at all. But in the third act, he gets to do it. Right. And it's that calm before the storm sort of feeling. The third act itself 
is a great complete movie. Yeah, you could have told uh, you could have stretched that out and made it its own thing. Yeah, you could have made that third act the movie, made it like an hour and forty five minutes, and it would have been chef chef fingers, just mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. It builds. It's gruesome. It is exciting. It is terrifying. It is everything that you would have possibly wanted a war film to be. And it makes narrative sense. Like, you know, everything that's going on in that scene all the time, no matter how much they shake the camera at you, you always know what's happening. This is the last okay use of shaky cam, in my opinion, honestly. Well, wait till we get to Bloody Sunday one day. Okay, I'll trust you on that. It's early Paul Greengrass. I think this is where you see all of the department's firing on all cylinders it's funny that you make the t-rex comparison because i think that's actually apt because when you're building dinosaurs you don't know what they sounded like so the sound designer has to figure out what are we going to blend here and i think they famously used like i don't know a lion and a elephant and some other things and blended it all together to make it Mm -hmm. sound like the t-rex and i've heard other instances of that and here there's a similar example in that the distant sound of the tanks coming. So not just the bassy rumble, but mm-hmm. the kind of squeaky tread, like ungreased tread kind of sound yeah. that gets louder and louder. Like that's all, you know, made from scratch. It's not the actual sound of the treads. So they use that as a device to give you this feeling of impending doom isn't the right word but it's a very david versus goliath kind of moment where they're like it's very industrial and mm -hmm. it's cold and mechanical Mm -hmm. and big and crunchy and just like it's it's very unnerving and it's an appropriate Mm -hmm. level of production design for such an infamous weapon of war as the tiger tank because the tiger is famous for you know, all of a sudden it shows up and like Shermans are firing at it and the rounds are just kind of bouncing off of it because the armor is so good. Despite whatever anyone might feel about the film Fury, there's a pretty cool assault scene with tanks where they use the one remaining Tiger tank that still runs to this day and is maintained. They somehow got it for that film and you actually see it in action, which is really cool. So we were talking about the tanks and Patton, and I won't retread like why they're inaccurate and the logistical reasons why they ended up using kind of 50s, 60s tanks. Spielberg decided that he really wanted to try and make these tanks look like Tigers as much as he could. And so what they basically did is they took more modern Soviet T-34 tanks and used the treads and the bottom of those tanks, which are about the right size. They're a pretty large tank the way the Tiger was. And then the turret on top was custom built by the prop department to look like a tiger turret. Now, if you're a tank nerd, there are little details like the turret's a little too far forward. Or uh, the the one thing I realized from reading is the easiest way to recognize the difference between these T-34s they use and a tiger is that the road wheels, the wheels that are inside the treads on a tiger are overlapping and on this, they're separate. They're not. So, like, that's one giveaway that it's not an actual tiger. I also don't know whether these are supposed to be tiger ones or tiger twos, but whatever. The point being, all their efforts paid off. And despite the fact that if you want to rivet count and be pedantic, you can tell that these aren't real tigers because, again, we destroyed almost all of them. Now, why did they cover it in stucco? Was that a thing? Did they do that as a production choice so that you couldn't easily tell? that it wasn't a genuine tiger or is that something that they were doing 
in World War II? That is a good question, and I'm not 100% sure. However, I did read that those tigers were covered in something that was anti-magnetism, so that magnetic uh, bombs and mines that you could like run up, kind of like the sticky bomb, but you could run up and stick to the side of, a, of one of these tanks using magnetism, would not have worked. And that kind of makes sense. If you take a piece of metal armor that is obviously magnetic and you cover it in something like stucco, if it's thick enough, that magnet is no longer going to work. So I think that's what that's supposed to be. So it's possible that that's accurate. I'm not 100% sure. Someone will have to write in and tell us, Liam, but it's quite possible that it just so happens that the way the production design made the tank, the way they textured the outside, and the way they would have really textured this material that was to cover up the metal so you couldn't use magnetic mines, has a very similar look and would have been plastered on the same way you would do wall plaster. I'm not 100% sure. Joke's on you, Germans. We've got socks and axle grease. Exactly. I tried to look up whether the sticky bomb is a real thing and was it in a field manual. Couldn't find it in any army field manuals, but seems plausible. I mean, honest to God, if it's not, what brass fucking balls on these guys? You're going to say check the field manual if it's not actually in a field manual? That's insane amount of huevos on that guy. You mean on the writer or on the character? Yeah, on the writer. That's just like, go ahead, fact check me, nerd. Okay, so we could go on forever because there's a lot to say about this film, but at some point we have to get back to our lives. So it is time for the breakdown where we talk about what the objective of this film was. Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, what did you think? So I think intention is, is a lot in this. This is Steven Spielberg's fourth film about World War II and his third about the Western Front. And he has made several documentaries about the Holocaust since then and is very involved in Shoah Remembrance and all of that. And I feel like this film... He had the intention of showing the experiences of the men, the individuals who are fighting this specific war, which had a lot of political conflict going on with it. Not that it wasn't the war that America didn't want to fight. This isn't World War One, where Americans were very hesitant to get involved. This is much more something they felt was morally correct. But that doesn't mean that the men who are actually engaging in this war necessarily feel the same way one of the most memorable moments from the d-day set piece is that poor fucking guy who picks up his own arm that's recently been blown off this film is filled with those kinds of moments that are meant to be whether a visceral like the scene of the man searching around he's like oh i got my arm now i can continue to the emotional gut punch of watching wade slowly die as they're like here just just keep having the morphine you just you just go to sleep with the morphine spielberg's intention with this i think is very much to bring the realities of what it was like to exist in this time period and exist as a soldier to at least at the time this was released modern american audiences which in the mid 90s was a very specific kind of audience. And I don't know if the film works the same way now. I think it worked very, very well then. I think it was a movie of its time. Now I think it takes on a, a bit of a different tone. I think it feels 
more of a period piece, which obviously it was when it came out, but it didn't necessarily feel that way. And now it seems like a bit of a a relic, like you would watch, you know, Patton or something. And it still holds up, but I viewed it very differently this time around than I did the first time. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but I don't know that that's what Spielberg intended. So I, it was a real mixed bag for me, intention-wise. And did it succeed? I think when it came out, it absolutely did succeed. It was very powerful for critics and audiences alike. It swept awards, despite the Oscars' ridiculous nonsense, which... Was right and proper. I mean, you can't count on the Academy for any kind of consistency, honestly. Hence why, you know, you can have Moonlight win one year and then Green Book win the next. But I'm not bitter, I promise. But I don't know if it works as well now. Now it feels like more of a historical thing. It's not so visceral. It's not so impactful. And that's probably because in the same way that here's my mini tangent. I grew up watching The Simpsons, right? And the Simpsons writers talk about how from those first 12 seasons, you can essentially cut together most of The Godfather. And Citizen Kane. And Citizen Kane. And so I didn't watch The Godfather until much later. And so I watched it and I was like, oh, I kind of feel like deja vu is happening. And that's kind of what it feels like with Saving Private Ryan. Like there's been so many moments that are copied, parodied, the themes, the the cinematic styling, like so much of this has impacted war films and films in general after it, that it's kind of hard to look back on it now and see it as its own thing. Did I like it? Yes, I did. And I liked it in the same way that I enjoyed something like Kane Mutiny, where I, I was able to, instead of viscerally engaging in it the way I did when I first watched it when it came out back the mid-90s, it was a much more remote viewing and something that I was able to evaluate on a different level. And that's not bad. That's not good. That's just what it is. And I liked it. I'll watch it again. But I don't know that it holds up as well as all of those rave fucking reviews gave it credit for way back when. There's my flawed take on Saving Private Ryan with a added Simpsons reference thrown in for funsies. Nice. Liam? Liam. So I think it's it's really tough to mistake the intentions of this movie as far as like what Spielberg has said. The objective was was to make folks appreciate what the men who fought in the war went through. It doesn't feel so much the Kane mutiny to me. As it does, they shall not grow old. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yes. If we're going to pull from movies that we've already discussed, it has a very, for good and ill, it feels a lot like that same kind of project to me, to the point where I think he kind of just wanted to make a documentary. And then he went on several years or a couple of years later to make documentaries right. about this exact thing. Exactly. So I think his objective, while it was to make people appreciate what, dad and grandpa went through his objective in the filmmaking was much less clear. I think this was a, this was a film that to a certain extent was kind of influenced by Ken Burns civil war documentary. 
for those who haven't seen it, the Civil War documentary has these little segments or vignettes where they will just do a quick 10 minutes on stuff that they ate, like hardtack and coffee. Or there will be like a segment about how the men would get drunk. There would be a segment about how, you know, about just like this thing of ordinary life or like it would have a quick focus and then it would move on to the bigger thing. And this kind of does that where it's like, okay, and now this is the quick vignette where we see everybody praying. You know what I mean? We like it's the Padre. Well, so you focus on the Padre, but then it cuts to another guy who's praying somewhere else. And then it cuts to somebody else who's praying. And then it cuts back to Jackson who's praying. You know what I mean? It's like, this is the praying montage where it's, it wants to draw in all of these things that don't actually further the story necessarily. Cause it's like, you need to have this quick bit of context that all of these men were praying for their lives. And I understand a lot about this movie and the impulses that drove it, but I don't necessarily like them all. And I don't necessarily agree that it goes towards making a strong, tight, coherent film or telling a, a cohesive narrative. So from his objective, I don't know, like his stated objective is clear and I think he was on target, but the objective of how he went about making this film and the structure of it, I think was a lot more muddied everything from the bookends to opening the movie with the show stopping action sequence to the way he cuts around in that action to focus on strange things to the random cameos that are just woven through this. This is like, it has a lot of similarities in that respect to, to the thin red line, which again, we haven't talked about, but you're like, Oh, weird George Clooney. Anyway, but it also has a little bit of American graffiti where you're like, is this where Nathan Fillion got his start? Like there's just so much like, <gasps> Hey, that's Harrison Ford before he was Han Solo. Like there's a lot of that shit going on. So it's like a little distracting in that, like the reasons why it was distracting then it was like, Hey, it's the guy from cheers. And then there's like, now you're like, wow, this is where Walter White got his start. Why is Ted Danson in this? This started like a big Ted Danson resurgence. Like this jump started his career after uh, Cheers ended. So do I like this movie? Yes, I I do. I do. And it was really interesting watching it with my son because he was really tense through all of it. He's 11 years old. He's never seen anything like this. But he also was like, I thought it was just from the way I described it, because I tried to prime him a little bit. I'm like, dude, this isn't like, because his favorite movie so far is 1917. Mm -hmm. Oof, very different. It was his first rated R movie and he absolutely loves it. And I was like, this is different. Cause like in 1917, you see like the aftermath mm -hmm. in this, you see how the bodies got there, but he was still not like, I don't believe he was traumatized by it, but at the same time, he really did have skin in the game with like, he was really happy when Mike survived another firefight. And then when Mellish was slowly getting stabbed by the SS officer. He was like, no, no. Like, it was just like, actually like it was, it was sweet, but I was also just like, I know, man, this one's hard. Hold my hand. We'll get through it together. That scene is about as hard to watch now as it was then. Mm. That is still more impactful to me than most of the violence in the movie. That's the one thing that I've never quite been able to shake out of my brain. And it's in that third act. That third act is really a great film. And if the movie were just the third act, this movie would have beaten Shakespeare in love and rightly so. And I probably have watched it more than just twice. 
the middle of this movie kind of sucks. I do appreciate some things about it that I didn't appreciate before. Like, I think now I like Tom Hanks's performance more than I did then. Mm. And I can't tell you why. It's probably just because I'm older. You can mm. appreciate his perspective a bit more. Well, I'm closer to his character's age. That That's a question I had. Not to jump out of my breakdown real fast, but just uh, like, how did one get to be a captain in World War II? Well, you to be an officer, you would have a college degree most of the time. Okay. So I don't think he probably got into the military as a captain. He was probably a lieutenant several years ago. And you'll notice in a throwaway line that him and Mike have been together since North Africa. Right. So since the... Casserin the, uh, Pass. Casserin Pass, which we saw in Patton, right? Mm-hmm. So the answer is Sergeant Horvath was already in the military before World War II. That's why right. he's an E7. That's why he's been in for like 10, 15 years. He's like a career military guy, probably. Right. Captain Miller... Probably has only been in the military for, I don't know, three to five years. And he started as a lieutenant and has made his way to captain, which is the third rank for officers. So, like, because we got into it in 41. So, if he enlisted when we got attacked in Pearl Harbor, that was the end of 1941. Promotions work a lot faster during wartime. So, right. I guess it struck me as odd that he was an English teacher and was also a captain. He would have had a, an educational degree and would have been seen as someone who was. Capable of leading other people because of his experience, I would guess. Right. But you don't know that Pearl Harbor was the inciting incident. It's quite possible that he would have joined the military before that because he saw where things were going and was like, I don't know. I don't. Again, it is possible. But Mm -hmm. at the at the same time, like English teacher coaching the baseball team wife. I don't know. I feel like the that strikes me as a Pearl Harbor made me enlist kind of backstory it's a quick track but not implausible especially if he's a brand new captain which is quite likely right that was gonna be my my question was how common was that for like a guy to be a teacher pearl harbor go to war captain and like a fairly seasoned captain too in order to get that kind of assignment he had to at least have some credibility i would say yeah, he would have had to meet some prerequisites, but and again, maybe Micah can write in and and correct the record on this. But also, I think that seasoned, yes, meaning he's been through a campaign in North Africa and has some experience. All the guys talk about him with this like weird sort of mystery and like love that seems to go back a long way and has been well earned. And that's not me like that. I'm not trying to talk shit on the movie in mm-hmm, this instance. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it sometimes comes off like that, even when I'm not. It was just a question that I had, not necessarily being like, did they fuck this up? Is like more just how common was that for like, how fast were those poor men expected to just figure this shit out with six months, eight months, a year experience? Or is it part of it that it is unusual for him to be a captain and a school teacher, which is why everybody's shocked that he's a school teacher? I was just trying to sort of like figure out what that dynamic was. The more apt question here or the more uh, precise question would be, is it normal for a school teacher, an English teacher to end up becoming a captain in the infantry more specifically? Because also like often we're shown mostly combat troops and the infantry in these movies mm-hmm. because we're talking about combat operations. But for every infantry captain, 
there are probably five captains in the rear who are doing more English teachery shit like, you know, Brian Cranston's character. And there's people all over the place in the rear, right? For every combat troop you see, there's all these people supporting them. And so there's plenty of work for a captain who has an English degree in like other departments in the war department, whatever. That aren't so dangerous. So it's quite possible that Tom Hanks volunteered to be in the infantry and that that's what he wanted to do. Again, I think the show also makes him shows him making some tactical missteps, which actually shows me that he has some clout and some credibility, but maybe he's actually not that experienced because he didn't have military experience prior to a couple of years ago. So he's also kind of figuring shit out. All that being said, I like his performance more now than I did when I was what? 16. I was more impacted by it now than then. That is one of the few ways in which this movie got better for me on this viewing. Most of it was kind of what I expected and a lot how I remembered. So, I mean, that's saying something right there that I remembered 92% of this movie mm-hmm. from having watched it 20 years ago. But yeah, I liked it. I don't necessarily like all of the things that this movie spawned, but it's a good movie. I enjoyed it. And my son fucking loved it. Steven Spielberg's on the record. Again, this is one of those cases where we sort of know the director's intentions. And so I think he was trying to make the most violently realistic depiction of D-Day and make a film that wasn't your classic kind of jingoistic and simplistic take on World War II, good guys versus the bad guys, the American GIs are saving the world by themselves. Granted, this film does not focus on our allies. It's really about American soldiers, which is, again, fine. Like, it's an American film. It's an American director. They do take a minute to shit on Monty. They do shit on Monty for a second. (laughs) And this is, again, in contrast to, you know, 50, 60 years of, well, I guess at this point, 50 years of filmmaking of lots of propagandistic World War II films. And this definitely feels different despite the fact that there are parts of the prologue and the epilogue that I agree with you guys and I agree with the critics for the most part don't work that well for me and I would edit differently. A little too schmaltzy and I could have done without that. I mean, really, it comes down to the whole show don't tell. I think there are moments where I was like, I wish Spielberg was showing not telling here. And I think you could change some of that to make this a better film. Now, I'm going to have to contend with my nostalgia here and like where I didn't have nostalgia for Patton because I hadn't really seen it before. I do have nostalgia for this film. I've seen it maybe 10 times in my life. I loved it when it came out. I love it now. Spoiler alert, not to skip to the end question, but I did try and look at it objectively, despite the fact that I know I really like this film. But honestly, the little goofs and historical inaccuracies and again, the ways in which the D-Day assault was both more and less realistic than real life. All those things are just like little bumps in the road to me on the road of a film that overall really nails what they're going for. And I really, really loved the way they did it, even for things that maybe sometimes didn't work for you guys. But like, I really love that Steven Spielberg was like, yeah, I'm not going to storyboard this battle. And I'm just going to me and the other camera guy are both kind of going to just move the camera around the scene and decide what we want to stick with and what we want to film. Like we're documentary filmmakers. And I'm like, that's a really cool and kind of experimental idea that I really, for me, the end result of that really worked. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that there are some cohesion issues in that the D-Day landing can kind of be its own thing and the third act can kind of be its own thing. I really like a lot of the character development in the second act. That's where a little bit of the dark comedy and some of the moments of relief, both sentimental and comedic, are in the film. And I actually appreciated that for the most part. So I get what you're saying, Liam, but I also enjoyed that part of the film. The one thing that was new to me in this viewing was kind of looking at the overarching themes that I did bring up during the episode and in talking to my friend Seth, where it was like, you know, the concept of the letter and what the right thing to do is and whether these people were dying for a good reason or they were dying for nothing. The morality of the mission, the war and the sacrifices of individuals and society as a whole to me, is the overarching theme of Saving Private Ryan. And it's reinforced by the bloody letter and the troops' conversations about family and the destructive power of war on the psyche, on memory, and on their future. Again, this is shown in different ways. Tom Hanks, or Captain Miller's character, has PTSD. His hand is shaking. Him and Mellish and other characters have many moments where they break down and the stress is really getting to them emotionally. And again, you see this theme repeated over and over again in the different interactions Wade is reminiscing about his mother and how he, you can tell he kind of wishes he had woken up at night and, or not pretended to be asleep so that he could talk to her more. And now he doesn't know if he's going to see his mother again in one of the most harrowing death scenes in the film where they're trying to help Wade through his last words are he's, he's calling out for his mother, which we know is realistic. Many, many soldiers in war die that way but it's really affecting because he was telling us stories about his mother earlier in the film and emotionally you know that really gets me upham's character while at times being a cipher for the audience his character arc kind of represents again it fits within this bigger theme in the film of what is the right thing to do when he fights to do the right thing in letting the POW go, that ends up resulting directly in the death of Captain Miller, showing him that in the fog of war, morality can become a gray area and there isn't always a right answer. We see it, like I said, when they shoot the uh, Czech soldiers that are surrendering and we see the Americans kind of laughing about it. Like no one's really black and white here or depicted as the good guy or the bad guy. They do seem like real people in a really shitty situation trying to make the best decisions that they can, some of which are within their control and some of which are not. And we also see these characters making mistakes. Caparzo died because he made a mistake. He wasn't following orders and he was doing exactly the wrong thing at the wrong time. Captain Miller gets Wade killed and again, realistically should have gotten more people killed because he made a bad tactical decision to take that radar site. Upham, out of cowardice, makes, you know, I guess you could call that a decision, but he fails to come to the aid of his fellow soldier. He also talks them into letting go of the POW, which, you know, again, you could argue whether that's the right thing to do or not, but it does end up killing Captain Miller to a certain extent. So, and the things about, you know, the D-Day scene being disorienting, I'm like, well, it's supposed to be disorienting. Like you're supposed to really get, it's supposed to deliver the feeling of what it was like to be there. And so for what the film accomplishes when it comes to the morality of war and the feeling of being in some of these combat situations, I think it knocks it out of the park so well that maybe I do give this film a pass on some of the 
inaccuracies, some of the mistakes they made, or some of the things that are a little too schmaltzy, because honestly, it really works for me, and I really love this film. I think when people ask me what my favorite war film is, I probably have to lean towards Lawrence of Arabia, because the filmmaking is so spectacular, and the storytelling is better in that. But this, to me, is like a close second or third. I will watch this many, many times. Yeah, I'm glad we finally covered it. I'm also glad we waited a year so that we knew each other better. And we've been patrolling a field together, having conversations <laughs> and getting to know each other's mothers, etc. Right? for a while. It would not have been as good had we done this as our first episode. Liam, what are we going to do next? Next up on the list, we are doing 2014's The Imitation Game. The story of Alan Turing and the good folks at Bletchley who helped crack the uncrackable Nazi Enigma code and helped win the war. Nice. I have not seen it since it came out. I'm excited to talk about that one. I've seen this a few times. I haven't seen it at all, so I'm very much trepidatious about it. Because <clears throat> I have thoughts and opinions that I'm not sure are true. So we'll see. I've seen it and I can't wait to talk about it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you want to get in on the discussion group, you can go to Facebook under Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group. Bring up whatever you want about the films that we're discussing. Correct us. Tell us what we did well or not. You can also join our Patreon at DangerClosePod.com forward slash support. If you want to hear us talk about other war adjacent comedy action sci-fi films. And we will see you guys in a couple weeks. Fairly well. bien tendrement Comme s'aiment tous les amants Et puis un jour tu m'as quitté Here's a little postscript for everyone. I had this in my 50 pages of notes for Saving Private Ryan and just forgot to put it in the episode. But I think this point from our friend Dave Feldman is really important. So I wanted to make sure that it was in the episode and not just in our surplus ordinance. This is a piece from Dave titled, quote, The Lying Filthy Fingers of Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose, a famous uh, World War II writer, and he wrote several books, uh, at least one of them on D-Day. And Saving Private Ryan, I think, used him a lot as a reference and based a lot of the history on his book. But there is a problem with that that is not that well known. And Dave's friend has done a lot of work to elucidate that. So here's the story. My friend shared this anecdote with me as it is his goal to undo the historical damage that Stephen Ambrose caused with his narrative of the events surrounding the Rangers' assault on Point du Hoc on D-Day. The book is called D-Day, June 6, 1944, The Climactic Battle of World War II. Ambrose described in his book that the British crews of the LCAs bringing the Rangers ashore dropped the Rangers off too early and acted cowardly during the landings. What this does for Ambrose's book is to essentially paint the Rangers as triumphing not only despite the tough defenses of their German enemies, but also despite the cowardice and shortcomings of their allies, the British crews manning the LCAs. During a book tour some years back, Ambrose was taking questions from his audience, and an older member of the crowd raised his hand, stood up, and asked about Ambrose's description of the performance of the LCA crews at Point du Hoc, essentially saying that what Stephen Ambrose wrote did not happen as the older audience member was there. 
A few LCA boats actually did become mired in an unmarked sandbar a short distance from shore, and after they couldn't dislodge themselves, landed their troops and supported the assault with the machine guns that each LCA was equipped with. LCA crews are known to have behaved honorably on the day in question, and in some cases, shown extraordinary bravery in battle. Stephen Ambrose, for his part, thanked the old veteran for his service and pledged that in new editions of the book, the section on Pointe du Hoc would be updated and errors corrected. Unfortunately, Ambrose died before these edits could be made. Dave's friend had therefore taken it upon himself to correct this historical error, which he regards in his own words as a lie. <laughs> 